It's an honor to introduce a close friend of Ricky Bobby, Will Ferrell. A comedian at the Oscars, the saddest man of all. Your movies may make millions, but your name they'll never call. I guess you don't like laughter, and a smile brings you down. A comedian at the Oscars is the saddest, bitterest alcoholic clown. Jack Black! Will Ferrell! What did you think when you took off your pants and you ran around that racetrack and you did that silly dance? What did you think? I thought they'd love me. What did you think that you could change their wicked game? Did you think when you made Anchorman they wouldn't call it lame? What did you think? I thought I'd get to have dinner with Jeremy Hyers. We may not win tonight, but we shall win the ultimate fight. And I'm not speaking in a metaphor. I mean, literally, I am going to fight the nominees. I like the way you're talking. I'm hey, sick of this crap. Leo, you think you can date supermodels and win awards? I'm going to elbow you in the larynx. Ryan Gosling, you're all hip and now. Well, I'm gonna break your hip right now! Hey, Peter O'Toole, you're all legendary in English. I don't care. I'm gonna beat you down with my Nickelodeon Award! Mark Wahlberg, where are you? I won't mess with you. You're actually kind of badass. Once again, I hope we're cool. You are very talented. And Helen Mirren, you are just hot. What part are you going to? Peace, bro. Hmm. How many podcasters does it take to change a light bulb? I don't know. How many? One. But to fully understand why, we have to first travel back in time to the year 1880. <laughs> huh? I don't even get it. Whatever. Hello there, all you jesters, you goofballs. Wait a minute. What to fully understand why we have to travel You don't back listen to podcasts, back. so you don't get it. You I make more podcasts than you listen to. Well, then you I should listen- get that joke. Can you just explain it to me? <laughs> It's like some shitty setup to the intro to some podcast where they're like, we have to first travel back into, you know, it's like chapter one. We're going back in time to set the stage. Did you write that? I chose it off the internet. Because it made you laugh? It did. I thought it was funny. (laughs) Swing and a miss, eh? Well, maybe somebody out there does. Hello there, all you jesters, you goofballs, (laughs) you traumatized toddlers turned truth tellers. And welcome back to Spro and Lead Take on the Academy, the best and most esteemed podcast for Academy Award do-overs. I am Lee. And I am Spro. And today on Salt Tota, we're saluting some of the films and filmmakers that have given us the greatest gift of all. Graphic sex scenes. Laughter. Oh. The best medicine. The universal language. The almighty adhesive. Or, for you, Lee, the unreachable summit. Oh, thank you. I actually don't really think I'm particularly funny. I think I'm, I feel like I'm kind of batting in the 200 range. Does that feel high, low to you? 
but I don't follow baseball. Anyway, last season we did a tribute to the horror genre, and today's episode will be structurally similar, but in case you missed our horror show, first off, definitely check it out. Second of all, here's how we structured it. We asked a bunch of former Spro and Lee Take on the Academy guests and maybe a few new ones to name a comedy film or comedic performance they thought should have been recognized by the Academy Awards. We spend a little time talking with each of our lovely friends and their picks, and that's it. Quick and easy. Q&E. And last time we did this kind of genre tribute, I unintentionally stole your Oscar fun fact and I gave a big song and dance about why the Academy tends to either relegate genre pictures to these certain categories or not nominate them at all. This time, let's have your opinions, bro. Why is it that comedies get so little love on Oscar night? I think it's because of subjectivity. What constitutes a great comedy? What makes you laugh versus what makes me laugh? Point of fact, the beginning of this show, that joke you actually liked. That joke didn't seem like a joke to me at all. So how are you going to get a bunch of governess together in a room, a bunch of Academy voting members for all of them to sit down and think this is a great comedy? Is everybody going to get the joke? Is everybody going to have the same kind of sense of humor? I think that is one of the big drawbacks to getting comedy on the stage. For me, the three comedies that got me laughing the most in the theater are these three. And you could say, you could tell me right now, I didn't find any of those funny. And that's okay. Number one, Dumb and Dumber. Solid. Number two, Multiplicity. Not as solid, but still funny. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Number four had me rolling in the aisles. A little problematic today, but whoo. Michael Keaton in that film was amazing. And then number three, I know you're not a fan of this one, but super bad. I'm not not a fan. I just, I I think it's overblown, a scotch, but. Those three movies were probably the funniest movies I've ever seen in a theater. And those three movies, I don't think you would ever see up on the Oscar stage. One, Dumb and Dumber was a screwball, dumb comedy. Like, how would you, how would you classify that? It's more, I think it's kind of more gross out humor. Okay. And I would say multiplicity, while I love it, I think is more low rent in a way. It just doesn't feel as highbrow as you might expect to get up on the Academy Awards stage. And then super bad is just potty humor. I don't know if we're talking and we will be talking this episode about what we would nominate or award for an Academy Award ourselves. And those three movies that had me rolling in the aisles. I don't know if I could necessarily look at them and say, this is what I would nominate it for. Perhaps effects for multiplicity. Dumb and Dumber, I got nothing. And super bad, maybe writing. But at the same time, I don't know how many of the jokes that I was laughing at were ad-libbed. But why is that comedies get so little love on Oscar night? I would say it's because everybody finds something different funny, where in dramas, a lot of the times that we look at it, some of the dramas that get nominated for Academy Awards are manipulative. You can watch the movie, you could read the script, and you can see kind of where the director and the writer were saying, this is where we're going to gut punch the audience. Not necessarily where it's natural feeling and everything like that, but because the universal gut punch is, I don't know, a sick kid or a victorious moment, or hey, we just made the racist not racist anymore. Like, this is amazing. Those are why dramas are easy to nominate, where comedies are kind of splitting the vote, I think, between them. It's sort of a knee-jerk reaction to want to exalt these important quote-unquote films because they deal with these big important issues and the pervading sense is that comedies don't 
and the comedies are therefore less prestigious. I think it's just easier for the Academy and the Academy voters to look at the dramatic actors and the dramatic performances and the writing that follows the hero's journey and to award those projects. Sure. So is it important that the Academy Awards recognizes comedies a little bit more on Oscar night? Well, I think it's important for the Academy to recognize all facets of motion pictures. If the Academy is going to do what it set out to do, which is to award and bring attention to cinema, I think we have to acknowledge that cinema is not just one genre. Cinema is spread out. That's why I like the fact that you brought these shows to Sproulingly Take on the Academy first recognizing horror, now comedy. I'm certain that there's a sci-fi in our future. The fact that you and I took a deep dive on the international films to realize that the Academy probably wasn't doing their homework. I don't know if I would necessarily, and I'll put this question to you, would you want a comedy-specific award at the Oscars, much like the Golden Globes do? Because a lot of the times at the Golden Globes, like I see what they're doing, but in the same instance, I don't know if it's because they have to nominate five that you kind of go, what? Three of those are shit. First of all, last year's Best Picture winner was Everything Everywhere All at Once, which I don't know if I would label it first and foremost a comedy, but it is incredibly funny. Second of all, right now, comedies are getting the filler spots. So last year, again, what was your one of your favorite films? Triangle of Sadness. Okay. And it was up for Best Picture. Did it have a snowball's chance in hell of winning? Absolutely fucking not. <laughs> so instead of making it filler for the, you know, for the drama Best Picture category, put Triangle of Sadness and some other comedies into its own category. And then Triangle of Sadness probably would have walked away with the Oscar, don't you think? Yeah, maybe. And I, while you're talking about that, I was like, so the Academy did what I wanted them to do, which is put recognition on some films in Triangle of Sadness. I would not have probably ever watched had it not been nominated for best picture yeah so then you throw that in the comedy well then you like throw it in the comedy category and i might be like much more excited to reach out and watch it because a lot of the times the dramas that are nominated are beautiful films usually the cinematography and the direction are amazing but you can over inundate yourself by watching all 10 best pictures in a row because of how somewhat saccharine they're about to feel Saccharine meaning I don't know. You use that word a lot and I just wanted to I knew you didn't know what that word meant. (laughs) Saccharine is like overly sweet. Sappy. Yes. Yeah, I mean that was Coda, right? Just so sweet. Oh right. Okay. That's what was on your mind. I was you you sort of meant like you can you can get to the point where you've watched all ten best picture nominees and you're like, cool. So now I feel like hanging myself in the bathroom. (laughs) I got you. Um, yeah, I would love if there was a, a best picture comedy and best picture drama. What about horror and sci-fi and well, just break it all down and try, you yeah, know. I'm going to take a page out of your book. Going back to the birth of theater, what are the two genres that were always recognized and always have been and are represented in those creepy masks that I think someone should make a horror movie about? Drama and comedy? I think a horror falls into drama. I think a musical goes into comedy. I think a sci-fi more than likely is going to go into drama. I think everything could be filtered through those two. Maybe we could ask our guests some of these questions. But before we go to the experts lounge to retrieve guest number one, I think maybe in the spirit of positivity, we maybe mention a few funny people who did take home an Oscar, at least in our modern era. 
Good idea. And I'm glad you said in the modern era, because to me, that's an important distinction to make. The Academy used to give a lot more statues to comedies, comedians and comedic performances, but slowly and goddamn surely that tradition faded into obscurity. So you start. Who or what comes to mind for you when you pair the word Oscar with comedy? I beeline right to Kevin Klein in A Fish Called Wanda. I heard moaning. I was worried. I was faking it, you stupid jerk. Don't ever call me stupid. And I'm not jealous. Then leave. Okay. A nice place. Don't touch his dick. His wife, his wife. He won Best Supporting Actor of 1989 for playing Otto, a brutish American thief convinced of his own intellectual superiority. And God damn it, did he earn that Oscar. I miss him, too. Not that he went anywhere, but... Nobody's giving him anything meaty to do, or maybe he's just not interested. I don't know. But last thing I remember him in was Robert Altman's last film, A Prairie Home Companion. And that shit, that's going on 20 years old. More Kevin Klein, please. Spro, what Oscar-winning comedies do you think of? I'm going to give you two. One of them I think you can guess. Because what do you know about me when it comes to beautiful women on film? Um, you fall very easily for Ugh. average actresses in forgettable roles. If, if you they're call this woman <laughs> an average actress. I don't know who you're going to say. We'll see. She was in I'm gonna Cameron Diaz. Did she win okay. an Oscar? No. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot what I asked you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired. Marissa Tomei. No, I, don't I go right toward her because one, Audra it's highly Audra. controversial. People think that she actually did not win. They think that her name was not in the envelope and... It was Jack Palance, wasn't it? Oh yeah, so Jack Palance is presenting Marissa Tomei with the Best Supporting Actress Oscar for her performance in My Cousin Vinny um, at the 1993 Oscars. And people think that Jack Palance like, said her name but didn't read it, that it wasn't her name in the envelope. And for the best performance by an actress in a supporting role, the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to Marissa Tomei in My Cousin Vinny. But actually, then Variety, I believe it is, Variety, Vogue, GQ, Esquire, one of those highfalutin, high-dollar, filled-with-ads magazines, then talked to some Academy voters and was saying, which one of the awards would you take back? Which do you think you made a mistake? And across the board, people said, nope, Marissa Tomei deserved it. We would not take that one back for her performance as the mechanic, all-car-knowing Mona Lisa Vito. What am I going to wear? What are you going to hunt? I don't know. He got, uh, he's got a lot of stuffed heads in his office. Heads? What kind of heads? I don't know. He's got a boar, a bear, a couple of deer. Whoa, you're going to shoot a deer? I don't know. I suppose. I mean, I'm a man's man. I could go deer hunting. A sweet, innocent, harmless, leaf-eating, doe-eye little deer. Hey, Lisa, I'm not going to go out there just to wimp out, you know? I mean, the guy will lose respect for me. Would you rather have that? What about these pants I got on? You think they're okay? Oh! Imagine you're a deer. You're prancing along, you get thirsty, 
You spot a little brook. You put your little dear lips down to the cool, clear water. Bam! A fucking bullet rips off part of your head. Your brains are laying on the ground in little bloody pieces. Now I ask you, would you give a fuck what kind of pants a son of a bitch who shot you was wearing? On the flip side of that, not a beautiful woman, I will always love the fact, but also slightly cock my eyebrow up at Robert Downey Jr. being nominated for his role in Tropic Thunder because... It is essentially blackface. I don't, I don't know that you need that adverb. It's blackface. <laughs> and I mean, that's an episode of a comedy show that I like where uh, a character is specifically trying to provoke police officers at a checkpoint. You know, like those videos where it's like, I do not have to roll my window down all the way. Uh, this is my right. You know, those people that do that bullshit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's mocking that. So he's trying this and this police officer will not bite. Police officer's like, okay, man, go on through. And the dude just keeps doing U-turns and going back through the checkpoint until eventually he does get maced in the face. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, one of the times he goes through, it's a black police officer and he puts blackface on. And they took that episode off the streaming service. Hmm. So what what you're talking about gets you pulled. Because they had one good party in for a black man, they gave it to Crocodile Dundee. Pumpy breaks, kid. That man's a national treasure. I just want to throw another shrimp on you, Bobby. That shit ain't funny. Hey, fellas, it's hot. We're tired. It stinks. I'm fucking with you, Kangaroo Jack. I'm sorry, a dingo ate your baby. You know that's a true story. Lady lost a kid. You about to cross some fucking lines. Guys, relax. You stop. know what? Fuck that, man. I'm sick of this koala hugging nigga. Tell him he's. For 400 years, that word has kept us down. What the fuck? Took a whole lot of time just to get up that hill. Now we up in the big leagues. Getting out turning bad. Long as we live, it's you and me, baby. <laughs> That's the theme song for the Jeffersons. You really need help. And just because the theme song don't make it not true. But what I like about both awards, one, uh, my cousin Vinny, pretty sure that's the only award for that film because it's kind of completely out of left field. And then also in the same instance, Tropic Thunder is a Ben Stiller movie where Tom Cruise is dancing in a fat suit. Both of those films traditionally will not be looked at by the Academy Awards, but for some reason they squeak through. And I would believe that if Heath Ledger did not die that year, I say it's going to Robert Downey Jr., but hot that's take. a conversation flaming for another day. Hot take, flaming. No. <laughs> if we have that conversation, we are inviting your co-host on Second Chance Cinema, our old friend MC, because I'm sure he would like to weigh in on that. <laughs> or maybe not. Yeah. We do know that he doesn't give a flying fuck about the Oscars, so who knows? One last thing, bro. You got an Oscar fun fact for us? You know it. All right. Keep it short. Keep it sweet, because this episode is going to be a beast. <laughs> but. Let's give Spro some uh, some time and attention for an Oscar fun fact brought to you by Odd Dog Coffee. For some of us, coffee is more than just a pick-me-up. For some of us, coffee is as important as who should have won Best Actor 2022. We take our coffee seriously. We're passionate, eccentric, and a little odd. And for us, there's Odd Dog. Odd Dog Coffee is a mobile cafe and coffee retailer from Cleveland, Ohio. They offer committed coffee drinkers a reimagined version of flavored coffee. They promise you a high-quality roast profile to create a solid bean. 
when they flavor their beans, they don't spray them down with cheap, stale chemicals. No, no. No, they use fresh ingredients like cacao nibs, cayenne pepper, and cinnamon sticks. What you experience is a balanced bean combined with a touch of spice to create a uniquely delicious cup of coffee you can drink every day. Head over to odddogcoffee.com where you can choose from three original roasts, cardamom and clove spike, the good boy blend of just the beans, and finally, my favorite, cinnamon, cayenne, and cacao. And if you're in the Cleveland area, check out their online menu at odddogcoffee.com and visit them at the Walter Stinson Community Park in University Heights, Ohio. Like film nerds, Odd Dog is at home with its dedication. Comfortable in its uniqueness, cozily familiar, yet distinctly odd. The movies we watch are too special to be normal, and the coffee you drink is too precious to be anything but Odd Dog. We gather here today to discuss comedies and comedic performances that have been overlooked by the Academy. But it's not like the Academy has never nominated or even awarded comedies for Best Picture. Much like the sounds of the lambs and the exorcist coming up in our horror episode, the Academy does give a little love to these neglected genres, except for maybe like science fiction, which gets a booty call occasionally from the Academy, but the Academy never holds sci-fi's hands in public. What is comedy is also subjective. Like dark or black comedies like Parasite are iffy. Some people might laugh and others might be pleasantly entertained by the drama or thrills those movies are opt to give. I'll tell you that I'm more entertained by the comedy rather than the horror of Scream, and would consider it more as such, but I may be alone. Anyway, there are 18 comedies that have won Best Picture, or movies that have enough comedic elements that we can consider them for this category. And, credit where credit is due, the Academy in the past five years has been doing much better at giving this category some love. If you won an Academy Award comedy night, you could start all the way back to 1934 with It Happened One Night. A film I really like, which stars Claudette Colbert and Clark Gable, directed by Frank Capra. You might know him from It's a Wonderful Life fame. And another Capra film also won Best Picture, which was in 1938 with You Can't Take It With You. This one is a little on the zany side. Going My Way in 1944, which Lee is on record now hating the best original song from. His back is brawny and his brain is weak. He's just plain stupid with a stubborn streak. And by the way, if you hate to go to school, you may grow up to be a mule. It's about a young priest taking over a parish. Which, back to the song, on AFI's top 100 songs and films over the past 100 years, that one is number 37, the uh, Swinging on a Star song. AFI agrees with Spro and Lee take on the Academy that Somewhere Over the Rainbow is the best song of any film. FYI, in 1961, one of Lee's favorite comedies, The Apartment, wins Best Picture. Directed by Billy Wilder and starring Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine, this is the first comedy which isn't just straight comedy, billed actually as a romantic comedy drama. It's still the first film in 14 years to make us laugh and take home the gold. 1963, Tom Jones wins, which if you want to know if you and I can get along, dear listener, watch Tom Jones. And if you can keep your jaw from dropping or your brow from scrunching in pure, what the fuck is this? Well, you and I disagree because Tom Jones is perplexing to me. In 1973, there was The Sting, Paul Newman, Robert Redford, Wicked Good Chemistry, Pulling Off a Con Job, 1977, Annie Hall. This film was quite popular at the awards and was, I think, Woody Allen's best. And because it was so good, I think the Academy gave old Woody Allen a lot of carte blanche he didn't necessarily prove he could handle, much like Damien Chazelle. But, but... Damien experiments more and doesn't marry his daughter, so I prefer Damien Chazelle to Woody Allen. 1983, Terms of Endearment, billed as a family comedy drama, but because of the ending, 
I would say it leans more drama. But there you go. 1989, Driving Miss Daisy, which Saltota has already gone after, is not deserving the award. It's actually one instance where we would take the award away from an American comedy drama and give it to a coming-of-age drama film titled Dead Poets Society. 1998, oops, we would take this award away as well. All right, because 1998 was Shakespeare in Love, and not because it didn't deserve it. We're neither here nor there on that, but because we cannot prove one way or another that it didn't win because producer Harvey Weinstein did or did not use his power and influence to win the award for a Shakespearean movie. Emily Lee and I came together to debate The Thin Red Line, Saving Private Ryan, and The Truman Show. We gave it to The Truman Show, which is billed actually as a satirical science fiction psychological comedy drama film. (laughs) That's a lot of genres, but comedy was one of them. 1999, American Beauty, black comedy drama of Kevin Spacey putting eyes on a minor. Seems less comedic nowadays. 2011, The Artist, which, good for the Academy, you know? Good for them finding humor in this film. Good for them getting some laughs out of that film. 2014, Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance, which is one I agree with as well. I was thoroughly entertained. The Green Book was a winner in 2018 and is listed as a biographical comedy drama, which, okay, I could, I, I guess I could see that. But much like Driving Miss Daisy, this film is weird considering its race relations. Maybe we'll get more into it one day. And then finally, we have Parasite, Coda, and Everything Everywhere All at Once in 2020, 2022, and 2023, respectively. So, are things changing for the Academy Awards? We have five films that have comedy in them in the last 10 years, where there had been 12 in the previous almost 80 years. Or are our films becoming more genre blending? Or (laughs) have the past 10 years been so dismal that our audiences and Academy of Voters alike have just been hungry for lighter fare? Regardless of the answer, Lee and me and some of our friends are here for it. So let's get into other performances and movies we feel the Academy overlooked and have a rip-roaring side-splitting time doing it. All right, bro, I'm ready to talk to some guests. You ready? Ready as I'll ever be. Our first guest is Claire, a former guest of ours. We're happy to have her back. Claire, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me back. Yes, Claire joined us earlier this season for our Best Picture of 1990 episode, and then we joined her for an episode of Why the Flick and talked about Seven, and now we're back again. Claire, we asked you the same question that we asked everybody. What is a comedy film or a comedic performance that you thought was overlooked by the Oscars? What did you answer? So, I went with The Birdcage for Best Picture. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Nice. Pop, I'm getting married. <laughs> it's a girl. I, I met her at school. It's this wonderful. Uh, what, what are you? Are you upset? But let me tell you why. Don't use that tone to me. What tone? That sarcastic, contemptuous tone that means you know everything because you're a man, and I know nothing because I'm a woman. You're not a woman. Oh, you bastard! Are you crazy? You can't get married. It's out of the question. We've been sleeping together for a year. Oh, God. Has he been tested? Oh, Kevin. Yes, and so have I. Oh! Uh, Who's his father? His father is in the arts. You do an eclectic celebration of the dance. You do Fosse, Fosse, Fosse. You do Martha Graham, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. You're Madonna, Madonna, Madonna. But you keep it all inside. What does the mother do? She's a housewife. Oh, I could play it straight. You take your knife. And you smear. Men smear. Smear, that's it. 
Get the pinky <laughs> down. Or I hold the knife boldly in yes. strength. Don't kill the knife, pierce the toast. <laughs> Al, you old so and so. How do you feel about that call today? I mean, the Dolphins. Fourth and three play on their 30 yard line with only 34 seconds to go. How do you think I feel? Betrayed, bewildered. Call me. Perfect. Won't you come in? Senator Keeley, Mrs. Keeley, come here and give me a hug. Oh! I've never felt such tension. It's like riding a psychotic horse towards a burning stable. Oh God, it's a nightmare. Get up, everybody, and uh, Something about the father and Mrs. Cole. I can't put my finger on it. It's that. nothing. What do you mean? It's, it's nothing. It is Dad, something. It is nothing. Something very strange is going on. I remember you saying that Robin Williams was one of your favorites of all time, maybe your favorite of all time. Did that have any kind of bearing on this choice? It 100% did. Like when you gave the prompt, my mind immediately went to Robin Williams. Robin Williams, I feel like is my favorite actor probably of all time. I'm going to I'm going to firmly say that. Like he's my favorite. And yeah, I think it's a shame that he didn't get nominated for more comedies at the Oscars. And so when I was looking through his work. I had a really hard time figuring out which one I was going to pick. I ultimately landed on the birdcage because I feel like it's not only it's not only great acting from Robin Williams, but the entire cast. There's great writing, there's great directing. So it all kind of forms together into uh, into best picture for me. And actually, the funny thing is that Robin Williams isn't even the best actor or best comedic actor in that movie. It's Nathan Lane. Um, but yeah, I just I love this movie so much. When was the first time you remember seeing this one? I think I saw it at a pretty young age. I'm pretty sure I watched it with my dad at home. I can't remember exactly when, but I feel like we watched it on TV and, and thoroughly enjoyed it. Spro, how about you? You remember seeing this one first time? Oh, yeah. I remember. I was in the theater. And it's funny to think about how much society has changed with our mm. more accepting behaviors. Because I remember one of the funniest things. I remember like the blue hairs in the audience cracking up when Gene Hackman comes out in drag at the end. And I feel like nowadays, it would kind of be like, there it is in drag. You know, like it was mm-hmm. such a funny thing because it was so out of character for Gene Hackman. But nowadays, I don't think it would be as funny. It would be kind of just run of the mill. Obviously, it's such a great comedic performance from everybody and a great comedic um, story. It's also, I kind of like had forgotten, I guess, how much of a like social message it also sends about acceptance. And not that I forgot, but just I think the comedy stays with me more. And the fact that it was balancing comedy and these social issues around the LGBTQ community and drag shows, that feels especially relevant now more than ever. It really, ba- I mean, not only am I laughing my ass off during this movie, but I'm moved to tears a couple different times, specifically the the part where Robin Williams is ordering everybody around and then he goes, and I'll go get fucking Albert. (laughs) And he meets (laughs) and he meets Albert at the bus stop and he's like, you know, no, you're not fresh and young anymore, but you make me laugh. You've always made me laugh. And now I have to get a plot at that shitty cemetery so that I never miss a joke. It's so sweet and it's like, I've never said anything that heartfelt and romantic to somebody, I don't think. 
were a little bit older than you. I remember the early 90s and I remember sort of following the awareness around AIDS and HIV. Then what followed was the impact that it had on the gay community. And you saw Pedro on The Real World and you saw Tom Hanks playing a gay man with HIV in Philadelphia and winning the Oscar for doing so. And then you see this movie, which was kind of, it wasn't serious this time. Mm-hmm. It yeah. was it was a joke. It was a lark. It was a, it was a gag. And I know that this is a, a remake of uh, Le Cage au Folle, the French play. I think they made it into a film as well. I've never seen it. Have you? I haven't. Spro, have you seen that one? No, I mean, I would love to, just to see how this translates yeah. onto the stage. But I- Well, in any event, the French and the rest of Europe is is miles ahead of us as far as uh, art is concerned. But this was the first time I remember it being like, okay, well, we can, let's laugh at this. Instead of let's take this seriously, let's laugh at this. So you pinpointed exactly what I think. I think the best performance in this movie is Nathan Lane. It's astounding to me that he wasn't nominated. The performance is a bit of a stereotype. I mean, yes, he's outlandish and yes, he has like this big personality and I think that is going to lend itself to comedy very naturally. But he also has this other like vulnerable side that he opens up to Robert Williams's character and I think that just endears me to him. And then the scene that always stands out to me is the very end when he's pretending to be the mother and everyone but the potential in-laws or future in-laws are in on on it and you're just waiting to see what is going to happen next and he keeps you on the edge of your seat the entire time whereas like Robin Williams it's funny because he has a much more sarcastic and subtle humor with the things that he says like there is a scene where Albert is like saying all of these things about like I'm this I'm that you made me this way and <laughs> Armand is like I made you short and then you know Albert's like Ugh, like and like flails around and I don't know it's just between the two of them, I feel like you can't have like Robin Williams being his huge Robin Williams self, right? Because Nathan Lane is kind of already in that type of role. So having him, Robin Williams, be a little bit more subtle with his comedy, I think just pairs together so well. And then you throw in Hank Azaria. Oh my God, yeah. Gene Hackman playing, you know, the straight-laced Republican senator who's freaking out and anxious about his re-election and all this stuff. Uh, I, I'm not a fan of Diane Weist. I think she was absolutely well, perfect in this movie. Why are you not a fan of her? I don't know. I can't pinpoint it, but I think she's perfect for this role. I think she's perfect in every role that she plays. The Lost yeah. Boys, get out of town. All right, sorry, man. Um, no, you know what I was just thinking about? I never have, like, come to Jesus moment or anything like that but I think this is the first time that I ever saw like a two dad two gay dad situation and Mm -hmm. as we're dissecting it for this episode I do believe that comedy needs more recognition because it can show us these situations these um make us more comfortable as you dance around how you want to say it well no i'm just because suddenly my phone lit up oh i thought you were getting squeamish (laughs) like how do i broach this no 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 well no because society like we we have evolved as a society and there are the dramas that get nominated right in the heat of the night showed us racism you know all these dramas really hit home the point that they're trying to make where the comedies kind of just show us a better way of doing 
hiding things. It's kind of, you know, hiding the medicine inside the candy. You know, I have always said that we should award films based off of what they show us about ourselves. And The Birdcage, I think, was probably, when did this come out? 96. I was 13 years old and just sitting in the audience and laughing my ass off and being completely comfortable with a whole different world than I was used to seeing. Because I can tell you, high school, my high school experience was not as accepting of this lifestyle as I see my students being today, which is great. And we're evolving. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because of movies like The Birdcage. So, Claire, back to you. Why don't you (laughs) think that the Academy recognizes comedies as much as dramas? I feel like they... uh the nicest way I can put this. I just feel like they write them off as not serious because they are comedies. So often I feel like the movies for best picture are these sweeping dramas and, you know, compelling stories. And with comedies, yeah, it's not as melodramatic sometimes or maybe it is, but I feel like comedies are so much more relatable to people and I tend to gravitate toward them more. And the thing with stories like these, like with The Birdcage, so often I feel like in media, the ones that get nominated for Best Picture is with LGBTQ plus stories are like tragic stories, right? Like Philadelphia comes to mind. And The Birdcage is not a tragic story. It's a comedy story, and but it's also a story about a family that loves each other and they're trying to do what they can for their son, even though, uh, side note, Val is the worst, and I have so many thoughts about that. Oh, I was going to um, bring that up. Oh, I was yeah. bring that up. He <laughs> Sorry. sucks so much. Yeah, uh, I have so many things to say about him, but it's a beautiful story. It's not sad. It's funny, and it's just putting this community in a light that of a story that, you know, not all these LGBTQ plus stories have to be devastating. We can also tell stories that are funny and enlightening and hopeful and all of that. So that was a very long-winded answer. I thought it was wonderful. Thank um, you. Dan Futterman. I mean, oh man, I don't want to shit all over the guy, but not only is Val an asshole to his dad, like one of my favorite parts is where he goes and he says it very heartfelt. He's like, pops, thank you. And he goes, Val, do me a favor. Don't talk to me for a while. Okay. <laughs> That's the perfect communication. And I'm not a, a parent, but I obviously am a son. And that's the perfect communication of, I love you and I'm doing this for you, but I fucking hate you right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And he sucks. And he's the weakest link in the entire movie. Like, yeah. Unfortunately. Sorry, Dan, if you're out there. So you would give this one the best picture Oscar. You say. Yeah. Now, to be fair, I was looking at the other nominees this year, and I don't think I've seen them. I can't remember the entire list. And I know I have, I called them, I think, Robin Williams blinders in my episode with you guys, but (laughs) I don't care. I love this movie, and I think it should have gotten more recognition. And I did look up a lot of articles that said the birdcage was snubbed, so I feel validated. Well, definitely the in the Golden Globes, it was nominated yes. for Best Picture Comedy or Musical, losing to Evita, which is a thing, I guess. <laughs> um, that happened. But I would say we've been like dancing around like different awards or that the Academy can introduce to kind of widen mm. their scope. And I do think this would be a shoe-in for obviously a nomination of Best Picture Comedy or the award for Best Picture Comedy. But another mm. award that we always talk about that should be maybe included as 
as best casting or best ensemble, something like mm-hmm. that. And I think, yeah. I don't know if on the page, Dan Futterman could have been better. The lines that he was giving just kind of makes you not like him, especially if you're going to be on the screen with Nathan Lane and Robin Williams and you have his role, you got to be standing there being like, I'm fucked. Like nobody's going <laughs> to like me. Well, the but, other thing is like, how yeah, old is he? But- He's supposed to be like 20, isn't he? Or 20. Yeah. That's yeah. why like, and then he's like also, 38. Barbara's 18. So I was like, that seems weird to be getting married so young, but whatever. I guess it was the 90s. And I felt like she was more comedic than Val was. I never watched Allie McBeal, which is her claim to fame. Mm, I didn't either. I did like her in this movie, though. Didn't the Birdcage win? Best Art award? Direction. Oh, for Academies, oh. it was Best Art Direction. Yeah, for Academies. Oh, they did win production? Or were they mm-hmm. just nominated? Okay, cool. Good oh, I did not know that. It did walk away with an Oscar. Yes. Well, it should have had more. more. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly. Oh, wait, no. It was just nominated for... That's what I thought. Mm, yeah. Uh, lost to right? the English Patient. Again, with the English patient. I know, at least Lee Charles is happy. Some good production design. I mean, I don't love that movie. I said I like it. I said I like that Uh movie. uh Um, It's it's a long, it's one of those like longing, heartbreaking uh, love stories. It's definitely long. (laughs) Longing, I said. Um, I heard you. Do we have any final thoughts on The Birdcage before we close this out? I'm glad I got to revisit it. And really, when I think about The Birdcage, the reason why I saw this movie was because Gene Hackman was my father's favorite actor. And so anything that was going to come out with him in it, we were going to go see it in the theater. When I'm talking about like the blue hairs in the audience laughing at Gene Hackman coming out in drag, that was my father. But when I think back on sitting in the audience with him, it was the the bowls that made him crack up the hardest uh, with the, oh, yeah. it looks like boys playing leapfrog. You know? <laughs> <laughs> my glasses dear <laughs> <laughs> all right well what, what's peasant what the fuck is peasant soup i don't know i made it up i made it up like, hard-boiled <laughs> eggs inside of it <laughs> the chaos that is that scene is just masterfully done not only is it the ensemble but that's that's mike nichols directing i mean mm-hmm. man was man was a comedic master you're trying to like wrap up this little segment and I just want to talk about the birdcage for life. <laughs> it's so hard. <laughs> We've got more segments to go. I'm sorry. But sometime after Robin Williams passed away, Nathan Lane was interviewed and they asked him about Robin Williams, your, you know, his co-star in the birdcage. And he brought up this story about when he was on the Today Show or some night talk show, late night talk show, where the host asked him, like, you know, are you worried that you're now going to be typecast playing gay men? And Nathan Lane was very worried because Nathan Lane was a closeted homosexual at the time. And Robin Williams really steps in in this moment and deflects to keep Nathan from having to, you know, face that question. And he really detours the entire conversation and the question is left unanswered and Nathan is left, you know, not having to explain himself when he's not looking to explain himself. It's really a very beautiful moment. This is the Robin Williams that I miss. It's the birdcage Robin Williams, I think maybe the most. Or another Robin Williams, which you almost picked, Mrs. Doubtfire. Yes, I did. (laughs) I was flip-flopping between these two, for sure. Between birdcage best picture or Robin Williams best actor for Mrs. Doubtfire. Ultimately, I went with the birdcage uh, for all the things I just mentioned. I don't think a comedy should 
rest on the shoulders of one man, even if that man is Robin Williams. And so to have everyone, almost everyone in the entire cast rise up to the same level as Robin Williams, if not higher, I think speaks very highly to the cast themselves, but also the director and the writing too, of course, like all that goes together for making it a best picture. And the last thing I'll say is that I gave this movie a rating on my personal letterbox. And what I wrote was, I too would have really liked to have Robin Williams and Nathan Lane as my family. And I stick to that. Wow. Maybe it is too much to introduce me as his mother on the first visit. Could you tell them I was a relative who dropped in? Val's uncle, Uncle Al. Well, what's the point to be Val's gay Uncle Al? Oh, I could play it straight. Oh, please, look at you. Look at the way you're holding your glass. Look at your pinky. Look at your posture. What? What about you? You're obviously not a cultural whatever it is. You've never been to a museum and you eat like a pig. Albert, these people are right-wing conservatives. They don't care if you're a pig. They just care if you're a fag. Oh, fuck them. Of course you can pass as an uncle. You're a great performer. I'm a great director. Together we can do almost anything. Oh, Amon, really? Absolutely. Oh. We've got five hours. All right, first, get your pinky down. It's up oh. again. All right, and your posture. Oh, oh my God, are you crazy? <laughs> what are you doing? Stop screaming. Oh. I'm teaching you to act like a man. Well, thank you for bringing this movie to the fore, and thanks for joining us. Um, it was a pleasure to rewatch this. Absolutely. Same. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me, and I had such a blast rewatching this movie too. All right, Claire. Till next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> All right. For our next guest, we're welcoming back our friend Kyle Bruhl of I Know Movies and You Don't. Kyle, how you doing? I'm doing all right, guys. Just uh, like I said, woke up from a nap to do this. So, you know, this is a priority and I'm very awake. I'm very awake and prepared. So I'm, I'm very excited. Comedy is very special to me. I'm, I'm sure it's to you. And so when you ask me, I have no idea what I'm getting myself into today. So I'm, I'm excited for what's going to unfold. We asked you the same question we asked everybody else. Name a comedy that you think got overlooked at the Oscars and then nominated for one or even give it one if you want. And the name of the movie that you gave us is... Kind Hearts and Coronets, uh, Robert Hammer's elegant serial killer comedy. And uh, those words seldom go together, but there are some. Madam, Lord Ascoin Dascoin is not aware of your son's existence as a member of the Dascoin family. It's very stupid since one day you might be Duke of Chelpont. The Dascoins were the obstacle between me and my birthright. But I could almost wish those people should all die tomorrow. I suddenly conceived a brilliant idea. What could I take from them? Perhaps their lives? late son. A great loss. I really wouldn't be surprised if you murdered them all. One could almost believe there was a curse on our unfortunate family. Indeed, sir, one could. It took a mere three minutes to substitute petrol for the paraffin. What is it? Oh, they're just burning some leaves in the bottom of the gut. Clear that you are insane. What harm can there be in one glass of wine? What harm indeed? You robbed me of words. 
Sie kann ihn. I might be a Duke Conde. Things might fly. I watched this last night and I think it was about 25 minutes in. I laughed out loud for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> it takes its time. This is an Ealing comedy, mm -hmm. which, you know, as, as usual, Kyle, you're teaching me and I'm sure Spro at the same time. Spro, is that fair? Oh yeah, absolutely. So an Ealing comedy and please jump in and fill in any holes that I happen to leave. But Ealing is a, is a British film studio who started making these movies kind of all of the same ilk, many of which starred Alec Guinness. I saw the Lady Killers listed within these, and then it kind of clicked. So, you mm -hmm. know, just because I saw the Coen Brothers Lady Killers. They started to become known as Ealing Comedies, and I found Ebert's description of this movie quite accurate. I'll read it to you now. Dry and droll, literate and cynical. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was pretty, I mean, just so dry. Not a drop in sight, so dry. Well, it is utterly dry. I mean, it, it, it takes you right into Edwardian reality and all of its mannerisms and all of its decor and all of its etiquette. If it was a wet rag, it just strings it out and there's nothing, nothing left. No, it, it really is that. I mean, it's pitch black comedy. And this will tell you a lot about why I chose this. I love it when people are just kind of skewered, put on roasters. Comedy is an assumption that it, that it's just supposed to be lighthearted, that it's just supposed to be, you know, about the entertainment value of it all. But comedy can like really get to an essence of truth and to see all of these people, people of class and Edwardian society and what they represent, either the military, either the government, either the antiquated aristocracy of it all. They're all positions of power and they're just getting lambasted, skewered, roasted, and literally killed in this movie. And there's something incredibly delicious about that. <laughs> <laughs> um that kind of goes along with like what we've been talking about this entire episode of just, I believe that comedy is not recognized enough because it's subjective. You know, everybody yeah. finds different things funny. Would you say you're more of the dark side variant of your comedy? Oh, very much so. I mean, uh, I, I thought long and hard about this question when uh, Lee sent it to me. I think Kind Hearts and Coronets is just utterly forgotten. Ealing comedies in general, and actually Ealing comedies were sort of standard fare. One that comes to mind is a Another Alec Guinness uh, starring was uh, Lavender Hill Mob, and he actually did get nominated for Best Actor at the Academy Awards for it. And it, it is a delightful heist sort of movie. It kind of takes you into a, a lighthearted affair. This one is the most bleak that they created. It's the most dark. And when the question was posed to me, I was like, well, what comedies do I just really love? And then I'm like, oh, yeah, Dr. Strange level where everyone, the world is essentially annihilated and the, the dopes of power are the ones who are going to survive. And then I was like, well, maybe, maybe not. And then I thought of arsenic and old lace. And I'm like, yeah, where they're, they're mocking people with mental disabilities. And like, they're, there are people trying to murder each other. You know, Monsieur Voudot comes to mind, another serial killer comedy with Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, I just veer towards the dark. If you can do dark humor accurately, I think it works incredibly well as commentary and as uh, something enlightening, you know, that that's where I, I find my, I suppose, my jollies, you would say. <laughs> 
I find like your mental film library is so extensive, staggering, so, like just breathtaking. I appreciate that. <laughs> kind of like off the subject, but still on it. How did you get into watching films? And then back on the subject, I'm going to ask when you first came across this movie, Kind Hearts and Coronets. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah, my 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 exposure to film essentially comes from my mother. Even though my, my dad worked in Hollywood in studio system for a long time, he's very business. He is very much about, oh, we, we make these contracts, we make this work. And so my interest in that was, you know, on the periphery of, of my interest, but I really like movies. I like the creativity of it. And my mom watched a lot of Turner Classic movies. She watched a lot of movies. Her father was an actor and uh, was he was at one point the second to last living member of the cast of Gone with the Wind. And so it, like that, that kind of connection got me interested. And so I liked watching old movies with her. She exposed me to a lot. Um, but it wasn't until uh, late high school where I started to become disinterested in the sports that my parents were pretty insistent about me doing that I found my interest in film. And uh, it wasn't until, uh, you know, through through that process, I found Kind Hearts and Coronets via the Criterion Collection because uh, as, as any budding cinephile goes through, it's like once you're trying to expand your knowledge, expand your connection in this world, you go to the Criterion Collection because they are pretty renowned and they are pretty consistent. And it was one of those titles on the Criterion Collection that had not been renewed. And so it was very difficult to find at one point. Uh, now that's not the case. I watched it on Canopy. Even though I own the DVD, I was wondering if I didn't have to like set up the DVD player. And I found it on Canopy, which anybody with a library card can access. So that's that's a really great feature that streaming can provide. Uh, I do advocate for more you know physical media, but that's great that sometimes you have access to these things. And uh, I sought it out because it was so rare. And I found it. It took so long to find it. Uh, I found it in a used DVD bin for like $20. I, somebody did not necessarily know what they had. It was out of print. And I got it and I watched it. And it was utterly delightful to me. I, I found it again, as, as Lee said, because of its dryness. I love dry. I love that it approaches it in such a matter of fact. It is essentially like a drama, but it becomes absurd and it becomes pretty nasty as it goes along. And uh, it, it's, it's rare that you find a movie that's willing to kind of be that honest in its scope. And so that's how I discovered it. This is a movie that you would have a really hard time selling to someone. Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> Even as, I mean, especially if you sort of front loaded that with like, oh, this is a really funny movie. <laughs> I think most people would turn to you maybe 15, 20 minutes in and be like, what in the fuck are we watching? But if you stick with it, it starts to sort of fit fit you or rather yeah. maybe maybe you start to fit to it. But I, I'm curious because I know that you do, you probably have an answer to this question, but I'm curious. This seems like a very British comedy. Yeah. I can't imagine, and maybe I'm wrong, but I can't imagine that this 
or any of the Ealing comedies, if this is characteristic of them, were very successful in the States. Is that a, a good oh, assumption? You no, know, I think that is a good assumption. It's, it is hard, obviously, because I don't speak French, like French comedies sometimes, you know, I, I don't necessarily understand the particular lingo or the particular cheats that they do, you know, in, in order to create a joke. Like, you you know, if, if you speak the language, it, that's part of the battle. But I, even though this is in English, I think it's the attitude. I think you are correct that it is very British. And But you see a lot of foundation of things that do break out in the States it's in that sense of dryness and mainly in that sense of irony. Because irony is something that the United States and uh, actually one of the American... Uh, members uh, or the only American member of Monty Python, Terry Gilliam has talked about this quite extensively is that there's a lack of translation between the two because the United States and the people of the United States don't have a sense of irony about life and themselves, but the British do. And you see that, you see that in a lot of their experimentation, like the, the Ealing Studios is kind of a foundation for where British humor is going to kind of launch itself. It's sophisticated. It's irony laden. It's kind of cruel. And you see that that inspires people like Peter Sellers, who who does like the goon show. The, the I believe that was radio. And then that attitude translates into a foundation for Monty Python. Obviously, Monty Python like layers in more of the absurdity. It leans into old surrealism and dadism, you know, from, you know, because of the mixture of the members. But it was was it, it really comes down to this foundation like you don't necessarily get an explosion of this irreverence this commentary laden comedy without Ealing Studios kind of experimenting because this one veers away from their natural predilections you know it, it is about kind of enjoyment and but 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 a lot of their characters were sort of unsavory in this movie your protagonist is sort of likable to, to a degree but you you know, Dennis Price is is so sinister in how his roles of vengeance and his look upon the aristocracy and what it represents. And I think a lot of people connect with that. You know, you hear people talk about bringing out guillotines, uh, you know, in front of CEOs places these days. And that's where that humor. Well, and, and maybe maybe people don't find that funny, but that's where that kind of attitude comes from. And people do connect with characters, even if they are unsavory. I mean, I, I liked Louis from the beginning because the jailer was kind to him and the jailer was impressed with his calmness. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, he's got it together. And then the guard falls asleep and he's like, hey, man, you're not here because I asked you to be here. So, if you really want to sleep, maybe do it a little bit more quietly. But then as the film progresses, you're like, man, fuck this guy. This mm. guy is an evil bastard. And without spoiling too much, I mean, I don't know. This is a fucking <laughs> this is 1949, 74-year-old <laughs> movie. I wonder if it had been possible to tell this story, because I thought of you, Spro, and the dreaded voiceover. I wondered if it had been possible to tell it without that. But then you wouldn't have that stinger of the memoirs. Memoirs? <laughs> <laughs> Did the voiceover bug you at all, Spro? 
No, but that's just because, I mean, I like the guy's voice. I did not have the same problem necessarily as you did, Lee, watching the film. I did, when it started in the jail and everything like that, I did question. I was like, this is a comedy? And we watched it on archive.org. Nice. Lee found it there for any of the listeners that want to watch it. But on the bottom, it said comedy, comma, crime was the genres for the film. And I was like, hmm, I wonder what kind of comedy this is. Because the film opens with them, you know, it's just talking about this is going to be my last hanging and everything like that. And I didn't necessarily understand where the jokes were. But as the film went on, as Lee was like, fuck this guy, I was sitting back with my arms crossed and just having my father's chuckle come out because I really appreciate these kind of movies where you are kind of following the villain and you're questioning your own self because you're kind of rooting for them and just kind of want to see where their journey takes you. So I did. I like this movie. I agree with the critics a little too long. I was looking into that. I was also looking into the Academy Awards because this came out in 1949 and I was like, how flirty were the Academy Awards being with their British counterparts? And it looks like they started introducing British films back in like 1944. A little bit at a time. It was uh, 1948 where Hamlet won. That was kind of the British films that we were exploring in the States, not necessarily dark comedies like this. We're kind of running long. I do want to focus on the award that you want to give, which isn't necessarily of the movie, but it's about one man's performance in it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I chose this particularly because I think when we all grew up, we we thought of a lot of these ensemble, impressive ensemble, comedic foundation performances. We think of like uh, Mike Myers and the multitude and multifaceted characters he does. And, and I'm not saying I'm not saying that any of these people are exquisite in any nature. It's no commentary on that. It's our knowledge and appreciation for people doing that. You know, seeing Mike Myers play Austin Powers and Dr. Evil is like it, it shows a, a a way that the comedic versatility can happen. And Eddie, Eddie Murphy does it. And, uh, you know, and Peter Sellers does. Peter Sellers does it in Dr. Strangelove. And I, and this is where it led me because I was thinking about Dr. Strangelove and why it's so funny and why why such an anchor of Peter Sellers' performance is so vital to it. And what's vital to Kind Hearts and Coronets is Alec Guinness playing eight different characters in a variety of personalities in very subtle, intricate ways. And I'm not saying it's like a brilliant comedic. Th- there are various points of brilliant comedic ideas. There's nothing funnier than Alec Guinness and drag as a suffer jet knocking out windows and then like having a wonderful wig in uh, the wind as they're like being launched away in an air balloon like that sequence just is comedic gold to me and just a sense of itself and a sense of irreverence of the time i think alec guinness is one of the most underappreciated performers perhaps in in movie history and i know he's won an oscar uh he was nominated for two others but he's just so good he's so effortless good and clean and to take on the role and personalities of eight characters in this movie and have it not have a stench of copycat between all of them is just so impressive and I know Lee and I talked about this is he the lead actor no Dennis Price is but he is the straight man and Alec Guinness is the comedic juice that like gives all the situations their luster gives all of the representation of the movie and all of the upper class either the military the the navy the the aristocracy the the lordship uh the oh the church all of them it really is on his shoulders to make the comedy 
work and to make the commentary work. And I, I really am always impressed by Alec Guinness. And I know people know him as Obi-Wan Kenobi. And that's just not enough. His his performance as the vicar, I mean, that's a 34-year-old man. I've never seen old played that well. Yes. The cadence of his voice, the the speed, the slowness at which he delivers his lines, and the way he moves when he goes to get the cigars, it doesn't seem fake at all. No, it's no. quite a thing. It's it's all in the detail. It's it's you know, it's it's even in when he plays one of the younger members, the photographer, and I'm forgetting his that particular character's name, but it's when he can't let his wife know that he drinks and she offers him a drink, you know, Dennis Price's uh Louis. Mm-hmm. It's just in the gestures, it's in that movement that character comes to life this is essential to comedy is if you can make the unreal real or the the exaggerated real just through gestures and being like oh i think i know i mean it it, it comes into kind of that amalgamation like what one of the great comedic performances i think of all time is john goodman and the big lebowski and it's because he takes exaggerated things that were real like john milius and some other producers and attitudes put those people that the coen brothers new into a character and he takes their exaggerations and you're like i know this person this is a real person even though they are a figment of creation and i think comedy works if you can make the exaggerated seem real that's a credit to their abilities and alec guinness was one of the best like he just got subtle gestures and characters incredibly well you could turn it into an exaggeration just like the year before he does oliver twist and does fagin and it's an incredible performance he was in his 30s and he's playing in his 60s and there's not an ounce of uncredibility in what he does and that's what makes you know kind hearts and coronets it, it like sits on his foundation and i think he's a true credit and master of comedy in uh, all of its varieties well i have no problem with this award and i thank you for introducing me to this film because i had such a treat watching it um you did forget you went eddie murphy you talked about peter sellers and you talked about michael myers you did forget about the unbelievable perfect role that michael keaton played in multiplicity playing oh, yeah. roles I, at once i, I, I do like multiplicity i do <laughs> like <too>. multiplicity <laughs> Harold Ramis, also an unsung hero of comedy. Mm-hmm. Like they talk about his movies, but they don't talk about Harold Ramis. And uh, Multiplicity is very well directed. Uh, Michael Keaton, that's one of my favorite Michael Keaton performances for sure. Yep. That and Desperate Measures for me. That's a good one. The one where he's like, comes back to life. He's like a murderer or something. Well, he doesn't come back to life. He's going to donate something to Andy Garcia's kid to save the kid's life. And then they oh, take him to the right, hospital. Right. And before he undergoes anesthesia he escapes so he can't be killed because he's the only one that's got the kidney that matches the boy this is way off track (laughs) way off track (laughs) all right kyle i'm sure we'll be talking again soon thanks for coming to talk with us about comedies man thanks for this movie absolutely no thanks for having me guys uh sorry i'm i'm a little uh long-winded uh so i uh, i'm sure lee will uh not appreciate that in the editing process but no thanks for having me on for sharing this movie it's one of those movies that i pull out of my pocket to share with people because i do think like lee it took you a little bit but i think that's the glory of it it sets you on a 
path of like almost like a Jane Austen kind of style drama. And then it starts unfolding and it's just kind of mean and silly at times. And I like when I'm thrown off guard and comedy needs to throw you off your guard. It needs to make you a little uncomfortable at times. And I think that it's one of the ways comedy can work. I'm afraid I'm late. Have you been born? No. I've been looking into the fire and thinking. What about? Oh, how we used to roast chestnuts round the other fire. What a lot has happened since. Such as? How you told me not to marry Lion because you might be a duke one day. And I laughed at you. And how I married Lion. Now I'm very nearly all a duke. We're much better off as we are, you and I. Don't very well of you to say that. You're not married to Lionel. We see each other when we want to. We're not obliged to see each other when we don't want to. We don't see each other as often as I'd like to. We've been away the whole weekend. I had to go. Where? To see Mrs. Descoyne, the widow of that cousin of mine who was killed. All your cousins seem to get killed. I really wouldn't be the least surprised if you'd murdered them all. Come, Zelda. Whatever made you say that? Just silliness. Well, if you promise not to tell anyone, I'll let you into my guilty secret. I did murder them all. Mm -hmm. I've suspected it for a long time. What's she like? Who? Mrs. Dascoyne. Oh, she's uh, tall, slender. Beautiful? Yes, I suppose some people call her beautiful. Would you? I suppose so. I never really thought about that. What would you say if she asked you about me? I'd say that you were the perfect combination of imperfections. I'd say that your nose was just a little too short. Your mouth just a little too wide. But that yours was a face that a man could see in his dreams for the whole of his life. I'd say that you were vain, selfish, cruel, deceitful. I'd say that you were adorable. I'd say that you were Sibella. What a pretty speech. I mean it. I am bringing to the table 1993's coming-of-age comedy set in 1976, Dazed and Confused. And this was written and directed by Richard Linklater. Later? Later. Help me with the pronunciation of this. Later. Richard Linklater? Later. Like a, yes. We'll link up later? Yeah, you got it. You know why I don't know that? Because I don't really like him. Before sunrise, before sunset, before midnight, boyhood. I don't like anything this guy does. Did you ever see his first film, Slacker? 
I did not. I saw Slackers, but I don't think that's what we're talking about. That is definitely not the film that I'm speaking of. <laughs> Dazed and Confused, though, is one of my top 10 favorite films of all time. And I will tell you why. It's because it's set in the 1970s. And I think it's one of those films that just immerses you like you are back in the 1970s. It makes me nostalgic for a time period that I never even lived in. I watched this one first, and then I watched American Graffiti. And you can kind of see the influences that George Lucas had on Dazed and Confused, because it's really the same thing. It's a driving around comedy with a kick-ass killer soundtrack. The film features a large ensemble cast of actors who would later become stars, including Jason London, Ben Affleck, Mia Jovovich, Cole Hauser. Cole Hauser, every time he's in a movie, he's one of my favorite parts of a movie. Parker Posey, Adam Goldberg, Matthew McConaughey, Nikki Cat, Joey Lauren Adams, and Rory Cochran. Not that we're here to split hairs, but I think two of those people went on to become stars. I think most of those people twinkled at some point in their lifetime. So this movie was released on September 24th, 1993. It was a commercial disappointment, grossing less than $8 million in the United States, only $918,127 on the dot on its opening weekend. But it becomes a cult classic because people are renting it. Nowadays, Resurgent, it ranked third on Entertainment Weekly's magazine list of the 50 best high school movies. I bet you can guess what's one and two. Breakfast Club and Fast Times. Do you argue with any of those three? No, I don't know if I agree with the order. I think I'd flip it. I'd keep Fast Times in the center. I'd put Dazed as number one and then Breakfast Club at three. Oh my gosh, my heart got a little bit warm that you're going to put my pick at number one. We're not going to argue about oh, this. Oh, it's, oh, no, not at all. <laughs> it's it's tremendous. I, I can't say enough good things about this movie. I don't think there's a false performance. I don't think there's a false moment. I think it is so well put together. It's a tight 90, isn't it? It's only like about 93 minutes long. Yeah, yeah. But it feels like you experienced this whole evening with everyone. Back when I was a teacher, my wife and I started a tradition. The last day of school, as soon as we got home, we would crack a beer, get some food going, and throw this movie on. We love this tradition. It's funny to see it from a teacher's perspective because we were just as excited to get those students the fuck out as they were excited to get the fuck out. I feel like I watched this for the first time in while visiting you and other people. That might be factual. I don't have memory of that. I have memory of you visiting multiple times. I remember I only visited time. once. Okay. Are you Your sure? Your college was the STD capital of Ohio, so I wasn't uh, going to uh, wasn't going to stick around to, you yeah. know, acquire crabs. We got to work in there. <laughs> The other thing that I'm glad that you brought up, because it's one of the reasons why I don't like Richard Linklater, because of his authenticity in other movies, it seems like he is always rewriting on the spot. And his movies are not necessarily about plot, but about what he can do and what he can get away with. And when it came to like Boyhood, it was a fantastic experiment. But when it comes to Days and Confused, and he has this cast of incredible actors, I think he did a really good job figuring out what their cast interactions were like, what their relations were like, and then forming the movie around that. Case in point, I know that Jason London wasn't supposed to be as big of a role. It's definitely an ensemble cast, but you're following his storyline more than most of the others. And it was originally Sean Andrews. You probably don't even know who Sean Andrews is. Sean Andrews was apparently an asshole on the set that nobody got along with, especially Jason London. You go back and rewatch the film, and you'll realize that they don't interact much because they 
almost got into a fist fight on set. Sean Andrews also took Mia Jovovich and eloped with her to Las Vegas. Jovovich was only 16 and her mother had the marriage annulled. He was supposed to have a whole lot more to do in the movie, but because the cast wasn't relating to him as much as somebody like Jason London, his part shrunk. Jason London's blew up. Then the movie kind of ebbs and weaves based off of Jason London's whole storyline about the coach of the football team wanting him to sign a document that says, I will not participate in drugs. We all signed this document. I remember being in high school and having to sign a document that I would not drink and drive at prom. And you even took a picture of the back of a shirt that we had for after prom that said, drive your parents really crazy and live longer, <laughs> which, is, which is crazy. <laughs> um, so we all had this and we went to high school 96 to 2000. This is set in 1976. It feels timeless. But in the same instance, it feels almost like something that you can go back and watch and learn a little bit about the history of the 70s. For white people, that's, you know, I, I hate, I hate, well, I hate to be that guy, but th- th- I mean, there's one black dude. I don't see color, so I don't know. Uh, Here's my mind going in a different direction. Usually with these end of the year, you know, summer begins movies, it's all about we need to get to the house party. And so it's the, it's like the can't hardly wait. Like everybody is getting ready. They all go to the house party, the house party hijinks happen, climax, end of the movie. Where this one, the house party is pretty much null and void in like the first act. And so you're like, where's everybody going and that's where the driving around happens the kick-ass soundtrack and then you find yourself in a field with people high on pot and then adam goldberg's line that i quote all the time i just want to dance oh, god this movie is fucking phenomenal oh adam goldberg's got a better line the monkey motherfucker one yeah. <laughs> here's a question for you mr script man yes um, have you read the script to this movie i have not I wish you had, because I'd be interested to know how much was on the page and how much just came out during production. Do you think it was planned to the nth degree or do you think there was, I feel like Linklater is the kind of guy that would just sort of let people cook. Yeah, I think you are right. I mean, everything that you kind of see about his process, like boyhood, you can't write a 20 year movie or however long, was it 12 years? That had to be rewriting. I know with Before Sunrise and Before Midnight, every interview that I see with Ethan Hawke, he's talking about, yeah, she said that she would never get off the train if I said this. So I tried this and, you know, like, and then we're just all sitting there trying to figure out what would get Julie Delphi off the train. And she's just sitting there letting everybody pitch their game to her. So I think he is a very loose, loosey goose writer, director, which is great. And I know a lot of people like his stuff. I'm not dismissing it at all. He's not my flavor. And I think Days of Confused is just one of those flash in the pans, sparks of genius that he had that even he couldn't emulate when it comes to everybody gets some. And I don't want to make this like a, a negative on Richard Linklater because Days and Confused, I think, is one of those movies that is perpetually flawless. This has also got to be Matthew McConaughey's best performance. He is so gross and perfect. He is such a pervert in the movie, and yet he's like the most celebrated character. You know, like the cult following celebrated Matthew McConaughey, and he was just trying to bang high school girls. Yeah, I, I love this movie. I dare say I think it's perfect. 
I've never watched any behind the scenes, but I imagine that Linklater probably had a lot of reels of film to work with. And I think the editing and the cut of the film is part of what makes it so great because, I don't know, I feel like if this was made, and it's probably coming, something along the lines of Dazed and Confused about the 90s or the early 2000s, like something like this is going to crop up again pretty soon because I feel like it's been a while. But Linklater kept this sub two hours. It's only an hour and 43 minutes long and it never sags. Yeah, um, yeah. So who do you identify with in well, Days and Confused? Because there's a lot of folks in this movie. I always followed. I'll tell you what. I don't know who I emulate, but I can tell you that the person that I wanted to be in life, like the kind of person whose behavior and character and attitude was so if not you steal me. Mine, I'm going to be so pissed. Oh, wait a minute. So not you. So not me. Okay. Don Dawson. You did steal mine. You motherfucker. <laughs> Who's played by Sasha Jensen. Who was like barely ever in anything else. I think my favorite part of the movie, and it's probably because, probably because I'm following Mitch Kramer, and but I think the part of the movie that feels the most real is where Dawson tells all of his buddies that he's going to steal the beer, and Mitch has to go out and be, you know, the lookout, and he's like, I'm just fucking with the guys. I'm going to buy the beer. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And he does that like, like he's going to punch him in the stomach, but doesn't. It's good right. stuff. Yeah. Probably, if I'm going to be honest with myself, I was the Anthony Rapp character, the Tony Osland. I just never had that piss poor haircut that he did but i was shy i nodded into my chest a lot so that would probably be who i would pick you know if my friend mike newhouse who was played by adam goldberg got into a fight i'd probably just stand there and be like you okay man <laughs> you're forcing me to be honest with myself i would probably be mike there you I'd go probably be, i'd probably <laughs> be you know angry about some dude instead of trying to score with a chick i'd be more angry about some guy who i thought was an asshole and then get my ass kicked by him after cheap shotting him. <laughs> but I don't know what I would get. Like, would I give it if this was up? I'd give this best picture. This came out in 93. So what wins in 94? Best picture of 94 would have been Schindler's List. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not going to so say Days of Confused gets it over Schindler's <laughs> List. If we had a best ensemble Oscar, it, it should get that. How amazing would it have been if all these kids go up and get the Oscar for Best Ensemble? Would have How been amazing great. of a moment. They need more young people to go win an Academy. Like, it was very fun to see Matt Damon and Ben Affleck fucking foaming at the mouth when they won. We're white males and everything's going great for us. <laughs> Uh, even as a white male myself, I watch that. I'm like, you guys need to tone it down. <laughs> I'll give you a caveat. I'll give you something that I don't like about Days of Confused. When I say practically perfect, there's one thing that bothers the fuck out of me with this movie. And that is Wiley Wiggins playing Mitch Kramer, grabbing the bridge of his nose when he doesn't know what else to do. Yeah, it's a drinking game. That's a drinking game. Every time he does that, you take a drink. Really? <laughs> well... <laughs> I learned that from my wife. So, and you know, she grew up in the STD capital of the world. <laughs> nice. We're going to bleep out just so people are like, what the fuck? Where is this STD capital of the world? Not to indulge in any alcohol, drug, sex after 12, oh, or any man. other illegal activity. <laughs> God, my shadow. Spider, baby. Found that in your glove compartment, man. Hey, you know, you're the third person who's given me this today. God. Well, what do you reckon you're going to do? So, I don't know, man. I'll probably end up signing. I just don't want to give in so easy. Man, it's the same bullshit they tried to pull in my day. You know, if it ain't that piece of paper, some other choice they're going to try and make for you. 
You got to do what Randall Pink Floyd wants to do, man. And let me tell you this. The older you do get, the more rules you're going to try to get you to follow. <laughs> you just got to keep living, man. L-I-V-I-N. <laughs> so, yeah. So, that's Days and Confused. I absolutely recommend it to anybody that hasn't seen it. And I would be hard-pressed to think we're going to get something as good in the future for any other era. Now we're joined by Adam and Andrew of the Revisionists Almanac Podcast. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. Doing Thanks great. How about yourself? Hanging in there. We like very... to talk over each other. That's That'll work. That'll work. It's very late. But we're here. We're all gathered here, and we're here because we asked the two of you, what is a comedy or comedic performance that you feel was passed up by the Oscars, and you gave us what movie? We gave you The Big Lebowski. I figure it's easy money, you know. It's all pretty harmless. She probably kidnapped herself. Huh? Oh, what do you mean, dude? Rug Piers did not do this. Look at it. A young trophy wife marries this guy for his money. She figures that he isn't giving her enough. You know, she owes money all over town. Oh, fucking! It's all bitch. goddamn fake, man. It's like Lennon said: you look for the person who will benefit, and uh, uh, you know, uh, I am the walrus. You know, you'll. Uh, uh, well, you know what I'm trying to say? I am the walrus. Fucking bitch. Oh, yeah. I am the walrus. That's ex- Shut the fuck up, Donnie. D.I. Lennon. Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov. What the fuck is he talking about? Fucking exactly what happened. Those, oh, that yeah. makes me fucking sick. Well, what do you care, Walter? Those rich fucks. This whole fucking thing. I did not watch my buddies die face down in the muck so that this fucking strumpet, this Walter, fucking whore, see any could waltz around Vietnam, down. man. Well, there isn't a literal connection. No, Walter, dude. face it. There isn't any connection. Your role. Have it your way, but my your point role. is that my point your is. Role. Are you ready to be fucked, man? I see you roll your way into the semis. Dios mío, man. Liam and me, we're gonna fuck you up. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. That was your pick at one point, wasn't it, Spro? Didn't you write that down and then erase it? Yeah, that was my go-to. I was like, it's got to be The Big Lebowski. And then I watched Days of Confused, and I fell in love with that one all over again. And I was like, I think somebody will bring up The Big Lebowski. And a couple people have. So the fact (laughs) that you guys are bringing it to us is like, you're at the top of the pedestal. I mean, I don't want to speak for Adam, but I'll just say, for me, I'm in my late 30s right now. This movie is so ingrained in my consciousness that it's arguably the most quotable movie of all time, if if you're asking me specifically on my taste. It certainly was, because I remember Fargo was huge, and that was what put the Coen brothers on on my map. And then their follow-up to Fargo, I believe, was Big Lebowski. So when that came out, I was like, oh, well, I got to see this. And to my great regret, I was distracted by a female during my first viewing of Big Lebowski, and I chose the female over the Big Lebowski. But oh, I have, that's depressing. It is. It's a little depressing. But I've since been reformed. Um, just a crazy cast. Everybody in this movie is great. You know, Coen Brothers kind of never, I don't think, ever really thought that this one was going to become maybe their most beloved film of all time. But it certainly did. Didn't win them any awards, but that's why we're here. So, what is it about this movie, Adam and Andrew, that just jumped to the top of your list? 
what really blows me away about this movie is it everyone talks about it the comedic performances and comedic movies always kind of get overlooked by the oscars you know unless you're like annie hall and people obviously revered woody allen at the time comedic performances just just get overlooked time and time again and this movie kind of feels like it's the perfect movie that should have been in contention because as you just mentioned the coens were just coming off fargo they got seven oscar nominations the cast is stacked with you know, Bridges and Goodman and Julianne Moore and on and on and on. It felt like it was the perfect movie to kind of break through into the Oscars and and get some attention. And looking back now, 20 plus years later, it's kind of shocking to me that it got completely bypassed by everything in the Academy Awards that year. Yeah, this uh, it's a very funny movie. It combines two of my favorite things, um, jokes and sports, which... Um is always a blast. And I can definitely speak to Corns and how much he loves it. Uh, on my podcast, we did a sports movie tournament and the committee was going to put this movie in the tournament. And Corns told us that no matter what we put in it, if Big Lebowski was in, it would win. So there was some collusion in the tournament. So we had to take it out. That's how much he loved it. <laughs> yeah. Now, I don't know if we want to kind of rehash the idea of, is this a sports movie? You know, it kind of teeters that line of, you know, is it a sports movie or not? But I figured if this movie's in the category, I could never pick a movie over this. For me, it's my go-to comedy of all time. And I, I just love it unquestionably. It's like a, a film noir comedy mystery private dick. It sort of got the hints of Dashiell Hammett. Boy, I'd call it a lot of other things before I'd call it a sports movie. <laughs> <laughs> Not to mention, as some hacky comedian said it once upon a time, but if you can sit there with a with a plate of nachos and a Miller Lite in between taking your turns, you might not be playing a sport. True. I might, I might side with, with Corns on that one. So what Oscar would you give to this film? If, if I'm taking personal bias into it, I'd kind of put it up for everything. You know, picture, director, the Coens, Julianne Moore, Roger Deakins on cinematography, on and on and on. For me, though, sort of the supernova of the movie and the thing that this movie could not work without this one particular person, which is why I think he deserves Oscar nomination at the time, is without a doubt John Goodman playing Walter Sobchak. In the conversation for funniest performances ever put to screen, in my opinion, especially when you look at the 1998 Best Supporting Actors, and we'll get into this, he should have been a shoe-in to be nominated and, and probably won, in my opinion. Yeah, Goodman was awesome. And I'm glad you brought up Julianne Moore, because speaking of getting distracted by a female, oh my God, Julianne Moore is transformative <laughs> in this movie. Um, <laughs> Vagina. Vagina. <laughs> um, but yeah, Goodman is fantastic. And he's, he reminds me of myself because he's just a sociopathic competitor. You know, I would, I would do a lot of the things that John Goodman did in this movie. If, if someone, <laughs> if someone is cheating and I got a piece on me, you know, you, you're going to, you're going to write down a zero. Oh my God. <laughs> well, not only, <laughs> not only is he definitely have shades of sociopathy, but he, he's fiercely loyal to his friends, despite the fact that he constantly is telling Donnie to shut the fuck up and fucking the dude's life up at the same time. It's like your best friend and your uh, the bane of your existence rolled into one. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I'm, when you look at John Goodman's career, he's shown such a range in terms of dramatic work, comedic work. What he puts into Sobchak in this movie is, you know, he's obviously got the unhinged levels of multiple scenes, but then even at the end, you know, when Donnie finally dies and he gives the dude the hug at the end, like there's that element of heart that I think only John Goodman could have brought to the role that adds this, this extra layer to it that takes it kind of above and beyond just this stereotypical one-note comedic performance. Like, there's a lot of layering to Sobchak, you know, when you've watched it a hundred-plus times like I have over the years. 
I remember I might have just been smoking too much weed in college, but I remember at one point watching it maybe for the 15th time at that point and being like, you know, the only time that Walter is wrong is when he pulls the big Lebowski out of his chair. I've seen some spinals <laughs> in my day, dude. He doesn't come up with the notion that, you know, Bunny kidnapped herself. But as soon as he says it, he, or as soon as the dude says it, it kind of clicks for Walter. And, you know, Walter's right about the toe. He's like, that's not her toe, dude. I can get you a toe. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, you can you can tell that the Cohen specifically wrote this movie for John Goodman, the part, because it's so specific to his kind of what, what highlights his qualities as an actor. And, you know, I was kind of clocking it as I watched it this week again. It's really the first time I've kind of digested it in such a way where I was kind of really analytical about it. He's only in 34% of the, the runtime. But if you take out any percentage of that, the movie doesn't work the same. I mean, he's, he's so integrated into the fabric of the movie that this thing just falls apart if he's not there. And I think, you know, when you look back on it, it's like, how could they have overlooked such a performance? It was so dynamic, you know? This movie didn't do very well when it first came out. So I think yeah, that probably had... Yeah, it it definitely didn't help. But like when you look at the other nominees, you know, James Coburn won for Affliction. Not a yeah, particularly great the, film. That's the thank uh, you, Oscar. Exactly. You know, Robert Duvall gave a, a, a fine performance in a civil action. There's nothing wrong with that. Jeffrey Rush, obviously we know Shakespeare in Love got all the Harvey Weinstein love back at that particular time, so that is what it is. Billy Bob and A Simple Plan's fine. Truman Show, Ed Harris, I'd say that's a deserving nomination. But really, there's nothing that like blew me away when I look at that supporting actor list, particularly at that time. So, yeah, for me, Goodman's got to be in the category. You don't think Donnie could have ridden shotgun with the, with the dude? You don't think Donnie could have? <laughs> Would have been a whole lot less dialogue. <laughs> I got to confess, I do love this movie. It's not my favorite John Goodman performance from a Coen Brothers movie. Oh, okay. I unabashedly love Barton Fink. It's hard to argue and, with Barton Fink. And his performance as Munt, Madman Munt. I mean, obviously, we're talking two different things here. You know, Barton Fink is, is a whole different comedic beast. Lebowski is laugh out loud. We talked to somebody else uh, for this show that recommended just just such a dry, dry, dry movie. And it's just strange that we consider both this movie and the movie Kind Hearts and Coronets as both comedies. So, Spro, what do you think of, uh, of old Walter Sobchak? John Goodman, to me, I think is one of the most underrated actors working today. I think every performance that he turns in is gold. And every time I see him in a movie, I'm like, I'm, I'm with this. I'm here for this. I would disagree. I like this performance better than Barton Fink. But to me, he's the best part of The Big Lebowski. I'm not as hyped on the Coen brothers, I think, as a lot of people are. They're not hit or miss to me. It's just sometimes I get it and sometimes I don't, I guess is the best way that I can describe it. And The Big Lebowski is one that I was immediately drawn to. Fargo actually took a little bit for me. I think I was too young when I first saw Fargo and I was like, what is going on here? And then with The Big Lebowski, I was like, this is the kind of stuff that I like. And then it was John Goodman's role that had me coming back. And it was the bowling alley scenes that I got really invested in. I'm slamming up tonight. You guys are dead in the water. All right, way to go, Donnie! If you want, it is no dream. <laughs> Fucking 20 minutes late, man. What the fuck is that? Theodore Herzl. Huh? State of Israel. If you will it, dude, it is no dream. What the fuck are you talking about, man? The carrier. What's in the fucking carrier? Huh? 
Oh, Cynthia's dog. I think it's a Pomeranian. Oh, I can't leave him home alone or eat the furniture. I'm watching it while Cynthia and Marty Ackerman are in Hawaii. You brought a fucking Pomeranian bowling? I brought it bowling. I didn't rent it shoes. I'm not buying it a fucking beer. He's not taking your fucking turn, dude. Man, if my fucking ex-wife asked me to take care of her fucking dog while she and her boyfriend went to Honolulu, I'd tell her to go fuck herself. Why can't you board it? First of all, dude, you don't have an ex. Secondly, this is a fucking show dog with fucking papers. You can't board it, it gets upset. Hey, its man. hair falls out. Walter. Fucking no. dog has fucking papers. Over the line! Huh? I'm sorry, Smokey, you were over the line, that's a foul. Bullshit, market eight, dude. Uh, excuse me, market zero, next frame. Bullshit, Walter, market eight, dude. Smokey, this is not Nam, this is bowling, there are rules. Hey, Walter, come on, it's just, hey man, it's Smokey, so his toe slipped over a little, you know, it's just a game, man. This is a league game. This determines who enters the next round robin. Am I wrong? Yeah, but I wasn't. Am I wrong? Yeah, but I wasn't over. Give me the marker, dude, I'm marking an eight. Smokey, my friend. You're entering a world of pain. Walter, man. You mark that frame an eight, you're entering a world of pain. I'm not. A world of pain. Look, dude, I, this is your partner. Has the whole world gone crazy? Am I the only one around here who gives a shit about the rules? Mark at zero. They're calling the cops, man. Put the piece away. Mark at zero. Walter, put the piece away. Walter? You think I'm fucking around here? Mark at zero. All right, it's fucking zero. You happy, you crazy fuck? The leak game smoke. I mean, he's literally a walking one-liner in this film. If you, th I, I ran through, he's, he's in 16 different scenes in the movie, and I've got 20 quotes that I wrote down just kind of casually as like quotes that I use in my day-to-day -day life. I mean, the Coens wrote it so well, specifically for John Goodman, that every line he says in this movie is pitch perfect. It's it's instantly quotable. Uh, every time I rewatch it, I've literally got it on the screen right now. Like I can hear the words he's saying while it's on mute. It's just it's a perfect, perfect comedic performance. I, I can't find a flaw in what he's doing. So I pulled a whole bunch of people yesterday to get different ideas of what people's favorite lines are and, and they came kind of all over the board. I tend to like the ones that I can use in day-to-day -day life and just kind of integrate them like things like Over the Line or Good Night Sweet Prince is, is one of my favorites just because it's so kind of weird and quirky at the end when he's, when he's shaking Donnie's ashes out. I mean, it's hard to really pick one for me. I don't know about you guys. I also gravitate towards one I can use in everyday life. 3,000 years of tradition from Moses to fucking Sandy Koufax. You're damn right I'm living in the past. <laughs> hey, man. You're not going to hear any, any complaints from Spro and I. I mean, this, this is, without a doubt, probably within the top five comedic performances of the last 30 years that were completely overlooked by the AMPAS. And uh, it was only a matter of time before somebody brought this one to the show. So thank well, you. We're happy it, we brought it. I'm glad it was you guys. Do you want to tell everybody about the Revisionist Almanac? Yeah, so uh, it's a new podcast experience. We're going to kick off in January 2024. We're going to be looking back through all the different Oscar ceremonies over the year with the luxury of hindsight. And we're going to determine what should have won Best Picture, Best Director, the four acting awards. Adam and I are going to kick things off in January with an episode on the 2010 Oscars, which was the King speech year. And then, funny enough, our February episode is going to be on the 1998 Academy Awards, which I'm sure we'll be talking a lot more John Goodman at that time. 
Wow, you guys are starting with the exact same year that Spurl and I started with. <laughs> oh, that's funny. You guys uh, have quite the task ahead of you because the deeper and deeper that Spro and I have gotten into this, the more we've realized we really need to do our homework. I mean, it's it's, it's the research phase is is exhausting watching everything. You know, you have to look up what the BAFTAs were looking at, what the New York critics, the LA film critics, the independent spirits, if those were a thing at the time. You got to bring in so many different angles and watch all these movies and rewatch movies now that you're older and it's it's... And you guys are going to do picture, director, and the four acting categories for every episode? Yep. Holy shit on a shingle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've, we've been pretty knee-deep in research for the last few months. And uh, yeah, we're going to be kicking it off with a bang. I'll These episodes bet. are going to get ugly. They're not, uh, this is not going to be a peaceful podcast. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to curse a lot. Friendships will be lost. I'm excited because there's other podcasts that do what we do, and I don't think they're that good. I've listened to five, six, seven of them because there's a bunch. When Spro floated this idea, I was like, oh, that'll be fun. I bet not, nobody gives a shit about the Oscars anymore. I bet we're the only ones that'll probably be doing that <laughs> wrong, wrong. So something we're going to do to kind of separate ourselves from kind of the the normal, like you said, there's a lot of these out there in the field. Uh, what we're going to do is we're, we're going to have a guest on every episode. Then Adam, myself, and the guest will all give our particular pick for each category that we mentioned. And then once we have all those picks up, we're going to throw it to the audience on our Instagram, Twitter, all of our socials. Mm-hmm. Whatever the audience decides as the winner will go into the almanac as the true winner. So we want to give power back to the people. So that's kind of our little <laughs> twist on the gimmick. I like that. You guys have real good involvement, too. We appreciate which, that. Which is nice to see. Well, I enjoy being a part of that. Um, hey, keep me and Spro in mind. Or me, anyway. Spro's <laughs> wicked busy. And nobody wants to know what, what Spro thinks, anyway. So <laughs> He's got a lot of coffee to manage, I imagine, right? Well, no, that's that, me. No, that's, oh, that's you? Okay. <laughs> no, he's the screenwriter and then five other jobs on top of it while also trying to get his master's degree. So, Oh, well, I just got my that. master's. There you go. Nice. What you studying? Uh, psychology. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to pick these now guests I feel apart. Like Tim and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's, that's the, the one thing that uh, that we keep running across. People are like, "Why are you guys just negative? Like, why are you so ne- like just more positivity in the world?" And we're like, "Fuck, these people can handle it. All right, these people got a lot of money. They've done a lot with their lives. Like, we could take away their little Oscar if we want." That's to. right. Something I find with the podcast is everyone's too polite and too kind, yes. and we're gonna we're gonna try to bring a little venom and a little fire to our episode. So we, uh, yes, yeah, know, I will not be polite. I can promise you that. <laughs> That's like the <laughs> biggest thing was like people be like, "Well, this person got snubbed. All right, well, who would you take it from?" Well, I don't want to talk about that. And it's like, well, you can't talk about who got snubbed if you're not gonna throw the hatchet. That's right, exactly. And I, I specifically love your guys' episode on the Will Smith hatchet. You guys went at him pretty hard, so uh, we're going to bring some of that same intensity, I think. I am fucking excited. Bill Nye, you can get the fuck out of here for uh, living. There, there's a shot that I'll be taking very early on. <laughs> Something tells me the King speech isn't going to hold up too well in January when we record our first. Oh, uh, see, and, and Spro was all gung-ho, and then the minute Spro started talking to people who listened to the episode, they were like, I like the King speech. Now Spro's like, it's it's a serviceable film. I mean, it's it's, it's there's there's, no, there's no, some merit no. there. I am, it is not. I am 100% on what we did. Oh, okay, sorry. Well, I'll but, throw a little spoiler out there. He's definitely not getting a nomination from me. Nice. Very nice. nice. No, fuck the King's speech. <laughs> <laughs> Our second episode was Lee going hard on Pixar's Up. He was yes. like, fuck up. Actually, you, you helped quite well, too, on that one. I was, I was, 
I agree with up. you. Up, up is the most overrated Pixar movie. I agree. Oh, you guys are killing me. I like the first 10 minutes of it, but after that, yeah, that movie is a mess. You attack up all you want, but please leave Wally alone. Oh, uh, I had no, yeah, I had no intent of touching Wally. All right, Adam, Andrew, thank you for, uh, this was, we've never met before too. So this was our first meeting and uh, it has to be an unfortunately brief one, but I imagine that we'll be talking again sometime in the future, either here on Spro and Lee Take on the Academy or on your show, The Revisionist Salmanac, which everybody can look for um, on all major podcast platforms in January of 2024. All right, guys, we look forward to talking to you soon. Yeah, thanks for having us. Welcoming MC back to the show. MC, the co-founder of Second Chance Cinema, the founder of the Mount Rushmore podcast, and a friend of Spro and mine for many, many years. How are you, MC? I'm good. Uh, let me correct, though. I'm not. The, I wouldn't call myself the founder of the the Mount Rushmore podcast. I just kind of saw what was happening and suggested we channel it into a, a more productive outlet rather than just bullshit text messages back and forth. But yeah, right. happy to be here. And um, again, as always, curious why you want me here. So let's do it. Because we like you. I enjoy your input. Um, yeah, I had a lot of fun. Maybe too much fun when you joined us earlier <laughs> you, this season. You, for you the, did uh, have a lot of fun. I guess I guess I kind of thought that was like, you know, that was why I was like, hey, let's do it on a Friday night, fucking hang out. Uh, yeah, misread the tea leaves there. No, no, no. It's just, I mean, you never know what's going to happen. That's the great thing about these podcasts. Well, you're here because we asked you a question that we asked everybody who's come on the show today. And that is, what is a comedy film or a comedic performance in a film that you feel as though was passed over by the Oscars? And you gave us... I gave you Borat. That was, I had two. Like I started with A League of Their Own and then I looked into it and I'm like, it it actually did get nominated for some stuff. And my second choice after that, I genuinely thought I was going to stick with was Borat. MC, what does this movie mean to you? Well, you guys are going to be proud of me. I did a little bit of homework and I looked up who actually won Best Actor that year. I think Best Picture as well. That's about as far as I went, but I tried. And to answer your question, so Borat goes way, way back. It was something that obviously he's a British comedian who made a name for himself in the UK before America even got wind of him. And it was around like 2004 or so that a friend of mine mentioned, hey, you should check out the show, The Ali G Show on HBO. For those of you who don't know, The Ali G Show was Sasha Baron Cohen portraying three different characters in segments doing basically what he does. And one of those characters was Borat. So I don't want to I don't want to play the, the hipster card and say, oh, I knew about Borat before everybody. But I was exposed to his particular brand of humor and what I would call genius before it exploded. And watching it when it was on HBO and then going back and, you know, trying to pull the UK episodes and watch clips on YouTube. I mean, it wasn't it was wasn't a novel concept. It was basically elements of candid camera and, you know, talk shows and things like that. But the limits to which he would push people and then keep pushing people was something that I'd never seen before. 
the content of the movie was probably on par, if not maybe a little tamer than some of the stuff that he did on his show. And it was just uncharted territory. Again, not so much because of the concept of a, of a guy in disguise duping people, but the nuances with which he portrayed the character and the cerebral gymnastics that he performed to get these people to say things that were so ridiculous and terrible or do things that were so ridiculous and terrible and then one up themselves by doing dumber shit. It was just something uh, unlike anything I'd ever seen before in terms of comedy and in terms of movies, I think. Um, it was like a hybrid found footage documentary narrative. It was a very strange architecture. But when it was over, I saw it, I saw it for the first time at a press screening. And I remember the theater was packed. They played it and there was just jaw dropped on the floor silence at the end before just an eruption of laughter and applause. It was like a moment where you realize something's happening. This is the beginning of something that's that's going to be big. And it was. And its popularity, I mean, certainly didn't come without its irritations. Of course, you couldn't for the next three or four years walk around without somebody saying high five or my wife or whatever. But looking back, when you asked me that question, what comedy performance deserves recognition in the form of your little gold man? I think this is pretty undeniable. So you said you looked up the winner and I actually had to just look it up too. You got to get your shit together. I know. I can I can name like the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s no problem, but the 2000s I start to get foggy. But it was that was Forrest Whitaker's year for The Last King of Scotland, which I've never seen it. That's, it's, <laughs> wait, it's wait a not second, bad, wait a but that might be a, a give me. Right, like a thank you. Hold on one second, because that's not what I thought. I thought it ended up... Yeah, they do dumb shit. So Borat came out in 2006, oh. so it would it would have been the Oscars of 07. Oh, okay. Is, so I did my homework wrong, because I was ready to talk about Philip Seymour Hoffman, but we can do Forrest Whitaker. I can pivot. I don't know, again, as much as I've talked to you guys about this, I still don't know what it takes to get an Oscar. It seems like acting is the the lowest tier of the requirements and above that is politics and marketing and all that other stuff that you guys lament and so do I but when you think about what an actor does it's to elicit emotions to get the audience or the viewer whoever to feel something through the portrayal of that character and I, there are plenty of reasons why Borat is such a phenomenal character I won't get into those but being able to portray that character in such a method way. I mean, we talk about things like Robert De Niro losing all the weight for Jake LaMotta, Matthew McConaughey, same thing. A lot of method acting is just losing weight, it seems like. But for this, if you read, you know, how he prepared and how he stayed in character the whole time, like if the Oscars are, are, are getting all hot and bothered over the, the preparation and the dedication and all that stuff, I mean, you can't overlook this because it's it's just a complete surrender to the character. Well, yeah, I think you're hitting the nail on the head considering the fact that people don't know that they're in the room with him when they're in the room with him. They don't, they can't see through the disguise, which also lends it to a different kind of conversation when it comes to best actor or acting in general. And these award shows, because it looks like he was recognized by plenty of critic societies for best actor and whatnot. You got best adapted screenplays of the Writers Guild of America and the Academy Awards, which if he is ad-libbing if he is making things up on the spot the writing and the acting go hand in hand so if you're going to recognize one you should definitely recognize the other 
The improv and the the ability to ad-lib in those situations is heroic. Like there are tons of stories of like iconic performances that were ad-libbed. Like you talking to me, that was supposedly ad-libbed and all those types of iconic performances that are recognized as these great moments in the history of film. Well, it's also weird. I don't want to cut you off, but I don't want to lose the thought either. It's also weird because it's kind of like putting the camera on behind the scenes of a method actor because he's just staying in this role and getting the results that he wants because he's also shaping the room at his mercy. But you got the Daniel Day Lewis's and the Joaquin Phoenix's and the people that get sometimes shit because, well, they have to be on character and set kind of like the, I'm thinking about Jim Carrey playing Andy Kaufman in the documentary on that. These people will sacrifice most likely like their good name or relationships in this room to deliver this character on screen. The thing with Borat is it's such a fluid character. He had to be on his toes every time he stepped in the room with whoever he was interviewing or fucking around with. And that's not to say there were takes that we didn't see where maybe it didn't come out as well as they hoped. But the stuff that made it to the film, and I know this isn't technically part of the review, but the stuff that he did prior, it's just a marvelous thing to watch how he is able to adapt to these situations and deliver deliver these lines that are like bait on a hook. And he he gets these people to say and do things that they don't even realize they're doing. Or maybe they do. But for the most part, given all the lawsuits and all the backlash once the, the <laughs> footage airs that, that people get pissed about, he gets these people to do things and say things that are against all common sense. There's almost an element of like sociopath to it because he's such a manipulator in character that it's impossible to like logic your way out of it. It's just pure charisma and emotion and, you know, just laying the groundwork and letting these people do all the stupid things that are going to that are going to make the audience laugh and cringe and all that. And I think the conduit of Borat, the character, is such a good foil for all these people because Borat is played as this ignorant, you know, uneducated, sort of slovenly, mildly misogynistic, like all these things that you're willing to give the benefit of the doubt for the sake of watching the movie. Oh, he doesn't know. So he doesn't know he's doing something wrong or he's doing something that's inappropriate. And the way he plays Borat, like it makes Borat so endearing. And that quality, like that innocence almost, is what gets people to drop their guard. And it's just fascinating to watch. You get a baby mouse. Baby mouse. And you uh, uh, put a bit of cheese in the hole of your crumb until (laughs) it go inside. That is too crazy for me. I'll do it. I don't give a fuck. I'll do it. Let me ask you this. Are women are women your slaves in Russia? No. Do you have a slaves here? We no wish. slaves. No we slaves. Wish. It is a shame. And Borak. Big Borak. shame. It, Big shame. It would be better country there, if... There, yes, yeah, there but would Borak. be a better country. We should have slaves. Our country, the minorities actually have more power. Anyone that is minority has the, the uh, upper hand. We have the Jews. We have anybody that's against the mainstream. Do you want to see my new wife? Yes. yes. It's my new wife. Femala! You know Femala! I know Femala! I will take her virgin for the first I time! I'm going to put this shit on! Put it on put the put it, put it. We, we, we have a lot to talk about. I will take her virgin, I will uncook her. Put it, put it, put it. 
you brought something up that I want. I, I kind of wanted to say. I, th- I think about like big action set pieces, maybe Temple of Doom, for example, when they drop the suspension bridge. It's like, okay, we got one take on this, and that is it. You know, and whoever was doing all the scheduling with these folks, you know, who knows how long they booked them for. So, you know, I'm thinking of that dinner se- sequence with the pastor and and his wife, and like maybe there's takes that didn't work, but it's like, yeah, he has to bob and weave. It's like I got to get content. I got to get there is. There's no do-over. He's the only one that knows he's in this movie. I think that makes it fairly singular and amazing. The point you guys, I forget if it was you or Spro who brought up all the other awards that he won too. It's obvious that this was a stellar performance, an award-worthy performance. And the fact that the Oscars didn't recognize him, I haven't lost any sleep over it, but it's also kind of a, actually a really, really good microcosm of why I think the Oscars are stupid. You guys asked me a while ago, like, how would you make the Oscars better? If they would have even considered a movie like Borat, a movie that was equally as ridiculous as it was intelligent, that would have shown depth rather than just nominating, you know, the best dramatic performance year after year after year. And I think that, again, the fact that Borat did receive so much recognition and so many awards and so much praise is undeniable. It makes you want to take the Academy, whoever that is, and be like, why? What, do you see what's going on here? And I feel I think like it was got- probably the 69 scene that kept them out of the Oscars. I'm going to defend my, my Oscars a little bit because they did nominate him for Best Adapted Screenplay. I feel like Best Adapted is kind of a weird one, considering, you know, as MC pointed out, I mean, I'm sure that they had maybe some talking points. And obviously, the whole thoroughfare with Pamela Anderson was, you know, but so much of the detail was never probably written down. Yeah. And that's kind of where I'm saying, like, I agree with MC with this best acting nod is because he was writing as he went. So it's kind of like you have to kind of marry these two awards. Yeah. What's the hardest? Because I I have a scene in particular where I'm just like, oh, (laughs) I mean, there's quite a few in this film scenes that that might make you be like, oh, God, like you're laughing. But at the same time, you you just weep for humanity. Do you have any scenes that when you watch, you're like, no, no, God, no. Oh, the frat boys in the RV. Of course. The frat boys that's, in the RV was, is that what you were thinking that's of? The one. Yes, sir. That's the <laughs> one. Yeah, I mean, you, you like, it's amazing how far we have not come since 2006, because that scene was, and that, that the movie came out not long after we all graduated college. So we had some experience dealing with gentlemen such as those. Which isn't to say that they're all like that, but I think the fact that he was able to kind of, for lack of a better analogy, throw a stone and hit the RV that contained those bigot, asshole, degenerate dorks. Misogynistic. I mean, all of it. And again, I guess we don't know the, the whole story behind how they picked him up and all that kind of stuff. But you have to think that it wasn't much more than, hey, there's some guys, let's go flag them down, see if they want to do this. We'll set it up to make them look like they picked me up and then we'll just go from there. And within seconds, he's getting these fucking morons to say things that either they're oblivious to how terrible they are or they just don't care. And you're watching with your hand over your mouth, gasping, like shaking your head, like what the fuck? 
But at the same time, it's the schadenfreude thing. You're almost glad that they're being exposed. The Wikipedias of all these films have a huge section on how many people try to sue him. Oh, yeah. For, and so I do want to point out two of the University of South Carolina fraternity brothers who appeared in the film, Justin C. and Christopher Rotunda, sued the producers claiming defamation. The suit by Say and Rotunda was dismissed in February 2007. The students had also sought an injunction to prevent the DVD release of the film, which was also denied. It's just funny, like the people that are like, why well, didn't mean to look like an asshole? You know? It's yeah, like- <laughs> it's like, it's like, I thought this was a private conversation. It's like what he exposed was, yeah, what people say when they think no one's listening. Yeah. I wouldn't begrudge anyone repentance or a mistake born out of genuine ignorance that was later corrected because someone honestly did not know what they were saying. I think those types of mistakes are certainly forgivable. But for those guys to be in a fucking RV with a cameraman in their face and say they they didn't know what they were saying or say that, you know, they don't consent to this or all that bullshit. Fuck you. You guys were a bunch of douchebags on the road to spring break and It was a small part of that movie, but it's a lasting scene. We're still talking about it. We remember how just terrible it was then. And it's the thing that sucks the most about it is that it could have been filmed yesterday. Does anybody have any final thoughts? MC, this was your pick. You got anything you want to leave us with about Borat? Cultural learnings for make great benefit of (laughs) Kazakhstan. I find it hard to believe that there's anybody listening to the show who hasn't seen the movie. But in the event that you have not, I encourage you to watch it. And if you're still not convinced of the intricacies and the the talent that is behind this character, the way in which this character has to walk on so many tightropes to get to that final product, then watch an interview with Sasha Baron Cohen and see what just like a mellow, unassuming dude he is. And I think that will give you a much better, much clearer, much more emphatic sense of the transformation into that character. And again, if we're talking about the definition of acting, I think that is a huge part of it, if not the biggest part of it. And I think that year, or I guess the year after that, or two years after that, or whatever bullshit they do, I can't think of anyone who who did a better job. I'm with it. Like I said, it was. I genuinely thought I was going to land on that. And I thought, you know what? Somebody might come with that one and I don't want to be like, yo, that's mine. So I'm glad I put it down and you picked it up. So thank you for bringing this one to us. It made my anus happy. Oh, thanks for having me, buddy. Let's welcome our final guest for today's comedy spectacular episode. It is the wonderful Rudy. How are you, Rudy? Hey, everyone. It's good to be here. Um, It's good to have you. And we asked you the same question we asked everybody else. What is a comedy film or a comedic performance you think was overlooked by the Oscars? And you gave us... Coming to America. Behold, Simi! Life! Real life! A thing that we have been denied for far too long. Good morning, my neighbors! Hey, fuck you! Yes! Yes! Fuck you too! Now, do you find it strange that a film from the 80s titled Coming to America does not feature the Neil Diamond song Coming to America? (laughs) Uh... 
Yes, but I also associate the Neil Diamond coming to America with uh, the Cheech Marin vehicle born in East LA. Mm. And so that's a that's an iconic film for me. All right. Well, I, I still feel like they, it was a missed opportunity. It was. It was. <laughs> I associate it with Saving Silverman, but that's oh, me. There you go. Which Oscar are you giving to Coming to America? Best Actor. Oh. For Arsenio Hall. Very good. Cleveland's own. Cleveland's yeah. own. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing the Arsenio arm move thing right now. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so this was at a time when, obviously, it's not Arsenio Hall. Obviously, it's Eddie Murphy. This was at a time when Eddie Murphy was like, it was Eddie Murphy, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Stephen King, who else ruled the 80s? Madonna? Michael J. Fox? Yeah, maybe. Madonna. Mm. Madonna. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Murphy was one of the most bankable stars at the time. Absolutely. And this movie did very well, but it, it strange. I looked it up. Was not super well received by critics, but fuck them. <laughs> I mean, obviously, the the I'm assuming the impetus for this pick is that he takes on all these different personas, which he was inspired to do by Peter Sellers, who did that quite frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe break it down for us a little bit. Why this film? Why Eddie Murphy? Sing to us. Oh, okay. Well, this is, as you alluded to, he's at the peak of his powers. This is him flexing that character-driven acting bone that he has that separated him from all the other comics. Um, if you look at, you know, his his trajectory up until this point, you could kind of say he's playing the similar character. You got 48 Hours, Beverly Hills Cop, The Golden Child. You feel, oh, those are kind of could be considered the same. But here, he's actually giving you layers and I can already hear the people now, it's caricatures. They're broad caricatures. I feel like those are people saying that, that never existed in those spaces. When he's playing the two guys in the barbershop, I knew those guys. When he is <laughs> Mr. Randy Watson, that is beautiful. We know, Spro and I went to a few, you know, we went to college. We know a few theater people that gave off Randy Watson energy. And I feel that it was completely overlooked because, and I don't want to get too controversial here, that it was a Black-driven film focused on the Black community and spearheaded by one of the most powerful entertainers of the day that it didn't really get the flowers that it deserves. And that's what I'm here today to do. I want to give it its flowers. We had another person come on the show for Kind Hearts and Coronets, and it's Alec Guinness playing multiple roles. I think Mm -hmm. the one thing that stands out with Eddie Murphy on this one, I mean, you have people like Peter Sellers, Alec Guinness, Mike Myers, uh, Michael J. Fox doing it in the Back to the Future series, Jean-Claude Van Damme playing his own twin like four different (laughs) times. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> but you have these people that play these other characters and dress up as women. I mean, Tyler Perry and Martin Lawrence also do it. But I think those are caricatures, like you were saying, mm-hmm. where the people in, in the barbershop, now I'm more accustomed to like seeing it. But I'm pretty sure that if I saw this back in the day, I would be like, there's something weird about that person. But in the same instance, I'm not going to see it as Eddie Murphy in a fat suit, you know, like yeah. Martin Lawrence might be for her big mama's house. <laughs> I'm not going to be like, that's a man in drag, like Tyler Perry in the Medea, Medea, Medea. Yeah, Medea. yeah. So like, it's not only him just taking on other roles. It's him becoming other people that I love so much. Pow, pow, pow. 
round. Sugar Ray Robinson, the greatest fighter ever lived. Oh, come on, man. What about Joe Lewis? The blonde bomber. Now that was a great boxer. You damn right. I suppose nobody in here ever heard of Cassius Clay. We got a point. Cassius Clay was a bad motherfucker. Hey, I ain't saying Clay ain't bad. I'm just saying I stopped liking Cassius Clay once you changed the name to Muhammad Ali. What kind of shit is that? Wait a second. Wait a second. A man has the right to change his name to whatever he wants to change it to. And if a man wants to be called Muhammad Ali, God damn it, this is a free country. You should respect his wishes and call the man Muhammad Ali. His mama named Clay. I'm gonna call him Clay. Mm-hmm. That's right. I say Clay. Get out of here. <laughs> That's right. That's right. He gonna always be Clay to me. I don't give a fuck what chain name to. He is Clay. He Clay to me. I say Clay. Well, then you're a putz. The three of you. Three putzes. You should change the name outside from Mighty Shop to the Three Putzes. You must be out of your goddamn mind. Joe Lewis, the greatest boxer ever lived. Question for you, though. Is he taking money out of other actors' mouths that could play those roles? Um, well, oh, course, yeah, he's uh, speechless. Of course, <laughs> yes. But I counter your question with, who would you rather see take on these roles? Eddie Murphy at the peak? He has ascended to He-Man level here. And no, I agree. I think yeah. like he I love him in all the roles. I hope he got a paycheck for each one of the roles that he played. Yeah, I agree. We talk about I mean, that's a big topic nowadays. Like, ooh, this person's getting cast to play this role, but could somebody else have done that? Back in the 80s, I don't think I would have wanted to see anybody else, honestly. I think the first hour of this film is nearly flawless. Once the love interest is introduced, I think the film sags. I actually think it would have been better if he had played, help me out, who's the shitty boyfriend? <laughs> Eric LaSalle? Uh, what's his yeah, name? Yeah. I just call him Soul Glow. <laughs> oh, gosh. Right? Yeah. If he had played that role, not. I mean, Eric LaSalle is fucking great. He's a prick and he's wonderful at it. But if he had played that role as well, or if he had played his love interest's father, that guy bumps me out. I don't, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but yeah, I think the first half of the film is where the prince is the funniest. And then he gets very like philosophical and romantic. I don't know. That's kind of one of my beefs with a lot of comedies, especially mainstream comedies where it's like, okay, all the fun stuff's over. Now we have to get to a point. But it's interesting that you said that it's a very it was a very black-driven film. The director of the film, however, was a white man named John Landis, who Murphy did not get along with. And I wonder if the film could have been even better had there been a different director. You know what? That's a that's a fantastic point. Cause it's not easy to showcase a culture. You want to make sure that the vision, the director's vision is going to do right by that culture and showcasing it. And I had no idea that there was tension between him and the director, but it's the what ifs, man. The production company behind the film was Eddie Murphy Productions. So not only like then there's like that battle of power because the producer owns the director and the director owns the, you know, like or not owns. But at that point, you need to step aside and just be like, Mm -hmm. what do you what do you want me to do? It does have to be weird because they are poking comedy at African culture and it's on the shoulders of John Landis, David Sheffield. I don't know who he is. And Barry Blostein. Barry doesn't sound like a 
<laughs> we don't want to speculate. Neither does, neither does Blostein. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still blown away by the fact that Arsenio Hall never had really had a, a film career beyond this movie. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, I can't think of anything. Like, and he's such a good counterpart to Eddie Murphy, both like when they're playing essentially the straight characters, but you know, they, they get to flex that muscle again and be a little bit more broad. And I, yeah, I was surprised as well. Sorry, I just, I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't being prejudiced against David Sheffield and Barry Blostein, but those two dudes are very, very white. David Sheffield <laughs> looks like the dad from what's the Fred Savage show? Wonder Years. Uh, Wonder Years. Wonder Years. Yep. He looks like that. And then Barry Blostein looks like a less attractive Anthony Bourdain. So this is three white guys doing this movie, which is weird. It's kind of off-putting. They also did Nutty Professor and Boomerang, and they kind of built their careers on the back of Eddie Murphy. What was the question? (laughs) (laughs) I brought up Arsenio. I just wanted to know if you wanted to sound off on Arsenio. He, I mean, he was probably the most successful late night host of African descent that I think that is out there. I can't name you another one. Magic Johnson. (laughs) Chris Chris Rock was on HBO for a while, but that wasn't prime time. Right. Uh Uh-oh. Late night so white. (laughs) (laughs) When was the first time you saw this movie, Rudy? Do you remember? It was at a friend's house. It was like one of those like, come over for a birthday party in the evening type situations. And it was pretty much just everybody gathered in the basement eating pizza, just bullshitting and coming to America came on. And I had heard everyone was talking about it. So like I knew most of the catchphrases, but it was that's that was my first uh, experience with it. What about you? This one was on cable all the time. It was either TBS or USA. It was on all the time, like maybe even Comedy Central too. So, you know, you guys are these after school gurus. You want to help the young. I was a latchkey kid. I let myself in. I watched, you know, however many episodes of Saved by the Bell were on, or I would rewatch movies, make myself huge sandwiches or a big tray of French fries. And I remember coming to America being one of the ones that was frequently on. It was also on on the weekends a lot. So I don't even know if I could pinpoint the first time I saw it. And I definitely can't. Like, I have no idea. It had to be when it was just running on HBO or something like that, that I was, I probably piecemealed it, saw a little bit of it here, saw a little bit of it there. I know you guys both are big fans of John Leguizamo. And, you know, I think of his sort of one man shows where he assumes these different characters. And it's almost kind of like Murphy, instead of doing a a one man show, just kind of wrote a story for these characters a little bit and then invited Arsenio on to be like, well, I don't want to do all these roles. So you want to play some of these parts? You know, they kind of I get the same vibe. You said the first hour is, you know, almost perfect. I like that it's like kind of an accessible story in the sense that it's a young person who is, you know, at an age when you really want to go out and like discover who you are. And it can be the Prince of Zumunda or it can be, you know, 18 year old Rudy graduating high school. You know, it's an accessible story at its core. And I feel like he just brought on all of his friends. Like, I feel like he was like, hey, I'm gonna do this. You come be a part of it. And they're like on board because it was Eddie Murphy. And then he, you know, just called up James Earl Jones and he was like, sure. He got James Earl Jones. He got fucking James Earl Jones. (laughs) That's amazing. Would be remiss to say that this was nominated for two Academy Awards that year. It was nominated for Best Makeup and Best Costume Design. Didn't win either, but the Academy Awards did take a little look at it. I mean, yeah. I mean, because like, look. 
the prosthetics aren't outrageous. The old Jewish guy in the barbershop, it's not outrageous like a Medea. I don't want to bring the whole conversation to a screeching halt here. The answer to this question for me is no, but have either of you watched Coming to America as in the number two, as in the... Sequel? I have, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> no, shit. All right. Okay. I liked it. Yeah. Really? To me, with all these sequels and these rehashes, and let's bring back, like, fucking Indiana Jones. Like, let's bring back everybody that we loved 20 years ago and see if it works today. You're a prick for using that as a... <laughs> yeah, that was a low blow. <laughs> Coming to America... Two, coming, I don't know how you say it. By then, I was like, you know what? Don't expect much. Just be entertained. And in the end, I didn't get much, but I was entertained. And I feel like that's as much as you can expect from all these rehashings, I think. That was I was I entertained about- by Dial of Destiny. You were the one stomping out of the theater. I was like, <laughs> you know what? You're like, he just goes from this place to this place, and he's chasing this thing. I'm like, that's fucking Indiana Jones, bro. Uh. <laughs> Fuck you, Sprout. Um, (laughs) But what you just said about coming to America, the second coming to America, that's the way I felt about Dumb and Dumberer or Dumb and Dumber 2. I can't remember which one was the prequel and which one was the sequel. I enjoyed the second one. So, no, maybe I'll have to look at that. That's on, that was made for Amazon, right? Yes. And look, like Eddie Murphy is just, he's one of those people that is, he is like all those other actors that you know you could trust on the screen to be entertaining. And regardless of what he's in, I was sad that he was donkey for so long in Shrek because I was like, I want to see Eddie Murphy. Like, I love this voice. I love this character. I love what he's doing. I love how they're acting off of each other in these films. I don't mind it. But, you know, get away from the an- like the animations and stuff and let me see your face, like your your brilliant mustache. I think he kept us waiting on purpose. I think he it was he was like, you know what? I'm going to change it up. I'm going to become a lovable child character that will be recognized for ever and you know what you guys are gonna have to wait to see see this this mug again well coming to america is currently streaming on netflix so if you're listening and you've for some reason never seen this 80s comedy classic or you feel like revisiting it it is available for you i know netflix just raised their fucking monthly rate again but that's how they get you Anyway, maybe give it a look again. Uh, Rudy, God damn it! Always nice to talk to you. Thanks for coming on okay. two times this season and once in between four and five. What a guy. What a guy. So Rudy, excited. can you give us your best Eddie Murphy laugh? <laughs> <laughs> Don't let him put you on the spot like that. I, I gave him a best shot. <laughs> He's a performer. That was, it was pretty seen. good. Too. It was pretty Thank good. You. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Ruby. Thanks for coming. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. You have a wonderful evening. Well, show me the way to the next whiskey bar. Oh, don't ask why. My choice is Simon Pegg for Best Actor, playing Gary King in Edgar Wright's The World's End. The World's End is the third film in Edgar Wright's Cornetto trilogy, which also includes Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. All three of these were written by Wright and Penn. And honestly, I could have picked any one of them and given them something, but I chose The World's End because I think it's the pinnacle of Peg and Wright's working relationship. Even before they made movies together, they have a TV show for the BBC, late 90s, early 2000s, called Space which is about a couple of struggling Gen Xers living in North London. It's 
only 14 episodes. Each episode's 30 minutes. And if you haven't seen it and you like Edgar Wright's filmmaking and Simon Pegg's comedic stylings, you really need to fucking see it. Have you ever seen Space, bro? No. Oof, quite a following for that show. And uh, a lot of people are still holding out hope for a third season or series, as they call it, across the pond. I doubt very highly that it's going to happen. Anyway, in World's End, I think Peg gives a career performance playing Gary King, who is a 40-year-old man surviving only on the luster of his youth, which has become scraps at this point. It was a time when his life was full of hope. And even after a quarter of a century, he cannot move on. And he idealizes this one memory in particular. And it was the night after graduation when he and his high school mates attempted the Golden Mile, which is this legendary pub crawl through the sleepy streets of their idyllic English village, Newton Haven. So it's 12 pubs, 12 pints. 12 pints is equivalent to 16 12 ounce beers. So, you know, light work. The movie opens with a very fast-paced prologue, a short scene, a scene-lit, if you will, before Gary decides he's going to set out on his next quest, convincing his old friends to return to their hometown and make a go of starting and finishing the Golden Mile. And, despite their universal lack of interest and enthusiasm, they agree to go, probably out of pity for their old friend, who's definitely not okay. But while Gary is pitiful, he's blissfully ignorant of his piteousness. He's also a selfish jackass and a lying bastard, but he's more than his shortcomings. He's undeniably charming. He's roguish. He's lovable. He's funny. He's endearing, so much so that when he starts to show some cracks and we see kind of how compromised he really is, we feel for him, or at least I do. And all these complexities are brought to life by Mr. Simon Pegg. And I think whenever an actor can make me care about a character that's inherently unlikable, it hits me harder. I think that's why my favorite performance of all time is Eli Wallach as Tuco in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And I haven't even mentioned the physical comedy. Peg plays Gary like this small dog with a rocket up his ass, romping with his friends and then defending his turf from interlopers. It's really quite something how he manages to sell the violence while preserving the laughs. And on a very personal note, I struggle with both alcohol and romanticizing the past. So I see the weaker sides of myself in Gary King. But forget about me. It's all about Simon Pegg. I think the man should have gotten a Best Actor nomination for this performance. Why? How do we know you put her in the car? How do we know you're you? Of course I'm me. But who the fuck are you, Gary? I'm Gary King. All right, there's only one Gary King. How do I know you guys are you? We've been together the whole time. Well, you might all not be you. How did you know Oman was an Oman? Because his birthmark was back. What does that prove? Because of what Basil said. They make a copy from your DNA. That's why he had his birthmark. He was new, like a baby. Like a man, baby. Like a maybe. Oliver with none of the shit that had happened to the real Oliver. And the laser surgery. So the blanks really are just blank. No wear and tear. No scars. Steve, in 1987, we were playing cricket and I accidentally pushed you onto a broken bottle that nearly went up your ass. So? Show us your bum. Very nice. Thank you. Pete, you got that 50cc Suzuki in 1988 and you let me have a go in it and I ran over your leg. What the fuck? Oh, right, it's the other one. <laughs> Andy. In 1986, we reenacted the knife game from Aliens and I stabbed you in the middle finger. How about December 1997? 
when you OD'd and I drove you to the hospital four times over the limit and I ended up rolling the car but almost severing my femoral artery, at which point you made a miraculous fucking recovery and ran off into the night, leaving me to get arrested after 12 hours of life-saving surgery. Either one of those will do. Thank you. No, I absolutely agree. And to actually explain a little bit about how I write, there is an actor, and I'm going to give them a shout out now. There's like two actors that I write in mind with when it comes to my plays and a little bit of the screenplays. But Rudy, who everybody knows is a guest on this show, his comedic timing, his stage presence, and his likability is something that I try to bring to the scripts. And then there's this other actor who lives in the Ohio area called Nate Bigger. And Nate Bigger I have written lead characters around. Nate Bigger has the presence of Simon Pegg. And I love how Simon Pegg can take these characters and make them feel like somebody that you either know or are yourself. And I absolutely love this pick as best actor. It's almost to me an honorary award that I would give like through Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and for this film because of Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg's like genre blending that they have to do. It's not easy. They make it look easy, but this is not easy. A little too much comedy and the horror gets unbelievable. It gets jokey. Too much horror and the comedy is lost. It's a delicate balance. Absolutely. And Shaun of the Dead pulls it off beautifully. When Shaun of the Dead came out, it was almost like a breath of fresh air because we got somebody else that can do it in Edgar Wright. And Edgar Wright cannot pull this off without Simon Pegg and his believability, his way to just relax into the script, relax into the character and his reactions are off the wall funny and real. Yeah, I hesitate to call this a hangout movie because it's got what you would describe as a clock, a ticking clock. It's like, okay, well, eventually they're going to get to the final pub, but it's kind of a hangout movie because you do feel like you're one of the guys that you're hanging out with these dudes and they're all such different characters and they all feel lived in, but you're right, Peg sells all of it, all of his reactions, all of his facial expressions, his movements. I'm really struggling with giving things away too about the movie and I don't want to. You know, sometimes people have these podcasts where they talk about movies and they just fucking blow their load all over it. And I want people to watch this. So, but yeah, there's a fight scene where Peg is, I mean, he is completely single-minded. There's a part where he's, they go, I think it's pub number two. They go to pub number two and he goes to order a beer and the guy's like, Gary King, you're banned. And he points to the wall and it's a picture of Gary King when he was uh, 18 years old. And he's like, oh, fuck. And they're like, it doesn't matter, Gary. Let's fucking go. And he's like, we don't have a pint in everyone. So I'll fuck up. All of his friends walk away and he looks at this like table outside on the patio area of this bar and there's like three unfinished beers and they all sort of add up to one pint and you just see him in the background it cuts to his friends talking and walking away and you just see him in the background downing these half finished beers so he's a single mind he's a drunk he is an alcoholic he's a really fun one though and i would love to do this bar crawl with him but yeah there's a part where they're in this huge bar fight and he's got his beer and he is trying desperately to drink this beer while also fending off these attackers 
all these little gags of him trying to drink and then having to fight and guarding the beer with one hand and fighting with the other. There's a part where he goes to take a sip and somebody gets knocked into him from another fight that's off to the, the other side of him. And all of his beer goes straight up into the air and he catches it all back in his glass. This goes on and on for probably like 15, 20 seconds until finally he goes to drink and a stool comes out of nowhere and just smashes the glass of beer out of his hands. And he's like, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Just gorgeous. Just, I mean, I have watched this movie, I would say, no joke, probably 25 times. Is that your favorite part? No, because I'm a softie. This film gets a little heavy. Obviously, it ends on comedy and it, and it rests on comedy. But the more you watch and the more you find out about these characters, the more you learn there's some real shit underneath, as there usually is with alcoholism and manic behavior. He's got a couple scenes that are that are really heartfelt. And I'm thinking of one in particular that just crawls right inside my heart. But my favorite comedic scene? I don't know. What the fuck does WTF mean? Right. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> to air to... is... Is human, so... <laughs> Have you got any plans for dinner at all? Tonight, we will be partaking of a liquid repast as we wend our way up the Golden Mile, commencing with an inaugural tankard in the first post, then onto the old familiar, the famous cock, the cross hands, the good companions, the trusty servant, the two-headed dog, the mermaid, the beehive, the king's head, and the hole in the wall for a measure of the same, all before the last bittersweet pint in that most fateful terminus, the world's end. Leave a light on, good lady, for though we may return with a twinkle in our eyes, we will in truth be blind. Drunk. Why'd they stop? Why did Seinfeld stop when they were going to pay him $20 million an episode back in 1999? Yeah, but you liked Edgar Wright's last one. Last Night in Soho? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think technically it's beautiful. That first flashback scene, I mean, that's kind of worth the price of admission. I wasn't happy with the way the story went. Yeah, I thought it was like kind of ended up being sort of like, oh, feel like I've he, seen this before. I mean, he did Baby Driver in 2017 and Last Night in Soho in 2021. And then yeah, he's, a, end was, he's, he's, he's a slow moving filmmaker. But yeah, I think they all just kind of went off to do their own things. But ultimately, leave them wanting more. And I think they kind of exhausted everything that they wanted to say when I said that this is the pinnacle of their working relationship. If you watch Spaced, and again, you really should watch Spaced, it's all about these Gen X men who are stunted in their maturation. Shaun of the Dead is about a guy that can't get his fucking life together and just wants to party. Hot Fuzz is about a guy who is the absolute other direction and needs to chill the fuck out. And then World's End is about someone who is destructive, not only to themselves, but to the people around them and cannot move past the past. So all of their collaborations in one way or another have been about men who still act like boys. I think they kind of said all they had to say and maybe they needed some time to go by before they could be like, so now we have something to say about what it's like to be 50. All right. I like the fact that you're focusing on Simon Pegg. Growing up in the heyday that we did when Jim Carrey was this jokester with a funny face and the impressions for days, but then wanted to become a dramatic actor. And so we compared him to Robin Williams. I like the fact that we live at a time now where people just do it and we don't like pigeonhole actors into one thing. And Simon Pegg, who is only doing action films now that have jokes in them for him to do. 
but it's nothing like these films that he used to do. And that's making me miss it even more. And so I was glad to see this on your list so I could revisit The World's End. And I have not yet went back to Hot Fuzz, Shot of the Dead. It's hard for me to even like pick a favorite. It's never the end. It's never the last one. I'll be honest with you. I don't know. I guess it's just all how you're feeling that night. The World's End to me is the darkest. It's the most grown up of all of them. We're recording this way before this episode comes out, but all three of them are streaming for free right now on Prime. See, I would watch Hot Fuzz at noon. I'd watch Shot of the Dead in the evening, and then I'd watch The World's End at night. That's how I feel like my day would go. World's End is best enjoyed with friends and a couple of cold beers. Anything Simon Pegg is in, he makes better. But World's End is a career performance. We just want to thank everybody for coming on today. No, I think it was very fun to hear some old voices, some new voices, some new friends, some old friends. I just like talking about this topic because I think it's important and it's starting to grow. You're starting to see it more that people, you know, we did the horror episode last season. We're doing comedy now. Hopefully we'll do a sci-fi. I mean, we could do a horror part two, three, four, five, a comedy part two, three, four, five. There are countless genre pictures that get no love at the Academy Awards. So I'm super happy that we're doing this series and I I look forward to it continuing. I mean, it's also funny because if you follow the Academy on Twitter, they constantly are referencing these genre films and it's kind of like, but you don't talk about them on your stage. (laughs) You're just saving it for social media. So it's nice to hear these films talked about with an Academy presence in mind, whether or not we are just, I mean, we put in the work. We're on season four. So when we breathe Academy and when we talk about Academy with these genre films like horror and comedy and in the future sci-fi in mind like it's nice to hear these two things melding together and even though we might be taking on the academy if anybody from the academy is listening we are in support of your hindsight and we are here for you if you ever want to collaborate <laughs> absolutely and, and I, yeah, we'll that might be the biggest or... joke of all, this entire episode <laughs> All right. Oh, you became funny by the end. That was good, because that first joke, effing bombed, if anybody remembers it from two and a half hours ago. Well, I didn't write that. I (laughs) still promise you I didn't write that. All right. For Spro and Lee, take on the Academy. I am Lee. I'm Spro. And we hope to see you sitting front row (laughs) with the envelopes. All right. Was that your Tom Hanks impression? Fuck you. Sounded like Tom Hanks. Lee will return with the season four finale in our popular and punitive quickie series. This time, we're going after one of Woody Allen's little gold men. In the meantime, check out at Take on the Academy on Instagram. Find us on Zuckerberg's Book of Faces. Send your social security numbers to takeontheacademy at gmail.com. And you could even rate and or review us on your Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google, Facebook, wherever you prefer. And finally, thanks for listening. Really, thank you. We took the liberty of reaching out to some of your references, and they all agreed you're smart, capable, and dynamite in the sack. Although, we have to report them now. Hasiki has una referencia y tata por ahora. 